that's why I, or that's how I drifted into it. Everything in my life is I sort of um, find something that works for me and then get obsessed with it. So yeah. So the, the posting was a way to keep you going. It was a way to um, force you to try to find something more interesting than we did last time. Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. In this episode, I'm speaking with Montreal-based urban sketcher and oil painter Mark Taro Holmes. Mark has been a pillar of the urban sketching community for many years and is known widely for instituting the annual One Week 100 People and the 30 by 30 Direct Watercolor Challenges with Liz Steele and Uma Kelkar respectively. But over the last few years, Mark has made subtle shifts in the kind of work he does and the way that he does it. He's less visible on social media, at a time when more and more artists feel compelled to spend more and more time on these various platforms, and has seemingly migrated from outdoor watercolors to indoor oil painting. Speaking with him in this conversation, I realized that although my observations are correct, they are also superficial. Like four blind men trying to describe an elephant, I did not have the proper perspective or a sense of the larger evolutions in Mark's life as an artist. Speaking to him, I discover that his reasons for becoming an urban sketcher are as fascinating as his reasons for moving into the studio. His reasons for picking up watercolors were as important to understand as his reasons for picking up oil paints. What value does the citizen sketcher, an avid gamer and an early cog in the gaming industry, an early blogger in the brief period when the internet was both smaller and larger, wilder yet more honest? What value does he ascribe to our human tendency to chase fake points and made-up numbers? Whether in life or in art, can we use gamification for self-improvement? This conversation felt like I was tracing the evolution of Mark as a person and as an artist, and it can be broadly divided into three segments. The first is Mark before he becomes an urban sketcher. The second comprises the various things he's accomplished as an urban sketcher and instructor. And the final segment is about the things he is doing now. Evolution is the right word for this because Mark was as much shaped by his own self-interest as by the different forces of his environment. Before recording this conversation, I had reached out to members of the Sneaky Art Podcast Club with the opportunity to pose a question to Mark. I asked that question in the final segment of this conversation as his turn to oil painting is the most fascinating thing for longtime fans of his work. Posing a question to upcoming guests is an offer that I extend to members who choose to support my work every month with a small contribution. If this is interesting or intriguing to you, check out the link in the show notes to my Buy Me A Coffee page and learn more about it. Because this is easily my longest conversation so far, I've inserted a break in the approximately halfway mark to recap the discussion as well as to preview what's ahead. I'll talk to you again at that resting point. But let's begin at the beginning. What made Mark observe his urban surroundings as an artist? What was he doing before that? What kind of artist did he want to become? And what happened when he realized that that would not work out.
good morning and welcome to mark thank you so much for joining me in the sneaky art podcast i'm absolutely delighted to speak with you thank you nishant hi great to meet you i've been really enjoying your interviews so i'm very glad to be here yeah that's so good to hear uh, mark uh, you're in montreal uh, tell me a little bit about how this past year has been for you with covid and working in your studio Yeah yeah well i mean of course it's been uh, the oddest year in our lifetime right i hope i hope this is the oddest year every year this is going to be a thing right every year we're going to be saying i hope this is the worst year we've ever had we're going to have so yes it's been bizarre and it's definitely been depressing and it's not over for a huge chunk of the world so uh, i feel very strange we're we're coming out of it they've just made us green again what they call condition green here so uh everything's kind of back to normal here but i know that it's not the case in a lot of places so it's a bit bizarre yeah but uh it was a chance to hibernate wasn't it to spend a year in the studio and not have to do anything else i'm very introverted so it was uh it was actually okay for me to have that excuse <laughs> to not have to go out and do things i took advantage yeah how about you well i share the the feeling of uh, how bizarre it is because Yeah like I've been relatively safe throughout I haven't really had to fear too much we moved in the middle of the pandemic we moved to Vancouver in January and things were just starting to get better for this part of the world at that time so it's been good for me and now things even in in British Columbia have opened up and everything is kind of getting back to normal but that feeling of disconnect really is very much it's very uh, very uh, out there now you can you can see that the rest of the world is not in this place and i'm not quite able to celebrate this turn of events because it it feels odd like you always wonder if there's something around the corner if something's going to change it again so should you grab it or should you be cautious is it okay to go out somewhere is it okay to is it better to stay put because i i also share that introversion with you i really in the part of the pandemic i've really enjoyed is not having to go out and meet people and having a really nice excuse to not do that and i've loved that aspect and most of the pandemic for me was quite chill i could read i just this is what i like to do anyway now i do not have the guilt that oh i should be out there i should go out more often well that that's it guilt it's like a national survivors guilt like is it okay now to celebrate are we supposed to go and like go draw in the streets and have fun or is that really just sticking it to the people that you know are still in trouble so i'm yeah it's a little bit yeah absolutely so you you've been doing a lot of work in your studio but and that's uh, well before that before the pandemic this was completely a decision made out of choice but being pushed into it and having this option of going out and doing outdoor sketching or painting taken away from you did this cause any kind of conflict did you feel like you wanted to go out at any point in this yeah no i i i was okay i mean it started to get you get a little cabin fever after a while but like you say it was by choice in the first place i had already started this big initiative to to dive into the studio which i guess we're going to get at at some point in the order of the questions but yes after all these years of drawing on location and i'd started to make this shift towards studio work it was kind of like okay fine i'm ready for this is what i've been doing for years anyway so I really could double down on isolating in my cave, my art cave. So, yeah, I was okay with it. It it got a little long and it started the problem is I started to read too much news and so then I just got and some of my paintings have been getting a bit self-absorbed and depressed in the first place. So, <laughs> it's hard not to to have too many dark thoughts over the course of it. So, winter was a little bit 
a little bit rough for inspiration. It was kind of hard to be excited about what you were doing. So, yeah. But if of all the people in the world, we were in a good spot. I didn't have to have a day job I didn't, the, to, to have lost, uh, you know, so I was sort of adapted to it in the first place. That's what all the introverts say, right? Like for the first half, we're like, this is fine. I, I don't care. Whatever. This is great. But then it starts to get even a little long for us, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That absolutely. It's it's quite the same for me. Uh, usually when I speak to my guest, Mark, I try to not go chronologically. Just as a as a whim, I try to jump at things that strike me as interesting first. And then I cycle around and around to cover the whole ambit of their work. But in your case, the chronological order is quite compelling and quite interesting because you've taken this very interesting journey through different forms of art, different media, and different kinds of practice. And even now, perhaps it's it's an ongoing journey, of course. So you're just in this one phase at the moment and who knows what's coming up next for you. So uh, tell me a little bit about your uh, the early phase of your interest in art. Um, where did you grow up? What kind of things drew your attention when you were a child? And when did you turn to drawing or making art as a as a way to express yourself? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, fortunately for me, this is an easy story. I, I was 19. On my 19th birthday, I started drawing. So uh, I had... <laughs> I know the exact day because I had never wanted to draw previous to that. I had a mental block. I was like, I can't draw, so I'm not going to do it. I knew the kind of drawings I wanted to do. I was uh, a big reader, inveterate reader. My uh, father actually worked in a bookstore, so I had an unlimited number of books. And uh, I was totally inspired my whole childhood by science fiction, fantasy, book covers. I always thought I would be an illustrator of book covers, which... You know, I've done a few, but generally that didn't happen. But uh, so I knew I wanted to do that. uh, I knew I couldn't, didn't have the skills. And at some point it clicked and I realized this is actually a process. I have to start or I won't learn. So up until my 19th year, I said, I can't do that stuff. That's too hard. I'm not even going to start. And then I suddenly switched. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. I have to immediately begin um, developing this skill. So I started on that, that exact day and began drawing and uh, yeah, whole thing launched. So it's kind of weird. I don't know how that, why that was, right? But um, instant uh, turn on in my brain. And so I think that might be a theme for this conversation is that there's something about me that flips the switch and I go from one topic to another every five years or seven years or something. Um, so very, uh, it's sort of this extended form of attention deficit. Uh, I have intense focus for a certain number of years and then somehow it, it has to completely flip on its head. So anyway, yes, I started as a kid. My inspiration was science fiction and fantasy, and I ended up doing video games because of that. Um, yeah, I was doing fantasy role-playing games for most of my like professional career. So uh, I always wanted to draw that stuff. I always wanted to draw from imagination. So it was very strange that I ended up um, becoming so involved in uh, location drawing in this movement called Urban Sketchers, which a lot of your readers are here for. And I'm sort of well known for that. That was this 180 process I'm talking about, where after uh, becoming an artist and working professionally, I went to art school uh, intentionally to become an illustrator and do those book covers, uh, though the world changed in the meantime and it ended up being video games. And it was all digital, all computers entirely from, I mean, you looked at reference, but you were drawing imaginary things. And then 
at some point I realized that there was a huge skill gap. My, my ability was really limited by the amount of data I had, the amount of experience. And I just went 100% into going outside and drawing on location and learning everything you could learn from life. Um, just to, yeah, because it was like the next, uh, it was the thing that I was missing to, for the next step. So, yeah, great. Weird answer, rambling answer, but does that sort of make sense? I started with that and uh, I became obsessed with that location drawing that I'm now known for. That's that's a, a couple of parts about that that are really interesting. 19 is already such a late age, a lot of people would say, to suddenly uh, have this switch flip that you want to draw. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, science fiction and fantasy drawings are very interesting to me because I've, I've been a nerd about SFF, about the SFF genre for the longest time. And I've always thought that the book covers were particularly campy and really, really strange art for the most time. Like uh, there's this uh, fantasy series that I was obsessed with called The Wheel of Time. And Mm. it has simply the worst fan art and the the most (laughs) strange covers. Like I never liked their cover art. But also there was... Uh, there was foundation and I read through all of those. I read through a lot of pulp fiction, science fiction as well. So tell me about the specific science fiction genre or fantasy genre books that made you want to draw. What were these first things that you drew then when you decided that you wanted to do this kind of thing? Well, I think what was fascinating to me was that you were making imaginary things real. So the guys that I liked were always a little little bit more realistic, like Michael Whalen was a big illustrator at the, in my age group. Uh, he might have done some of those foundation covers. I don't know if you know him. But of course, there was uh, Forzetta before that. Like when I was a, a kid, kid, uh, Conan books or something always had uh, Forzetta illustrations. And he was a, a big athlete. So his stuff always had that physicality of, of the character looked really real. And then, um, you know, there was this phase where of the fantasy barbarian art was so popular in the 80s, 70s and 80s. The famous thing of a of a so of a fantasy guy on the side of a van, right? Dragons and a barbarian chopping off a guy's head. So when you're a kid, you love all that stuff, right? It's a fundamental kind of power fantasy to see those those imaginary things real. So I suppose I I never liked comics, which I know you're a comics guy, but I never liked the superhero stuff. I liked the fantasy stuff. So I would even as a little kid, again, this is because of this weird side story of what my dad worked in a secondhand bookstore. So I had all these heavy metal magazines. So it was that kind of uh, semi-realistic fantasy. So yeah, yeah, I liked I liked the way these worlds were being made real and you could visualize these characters. So yeah, I do know what you're talking about. A lot of the European comics, I mean, some of the or, um, science fiction would have very strange kind of melted spaceships in front of these sort of spray paint planets and things (laughs) yeah 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 another thing you mentioned which uh, was very interesting to me and i want to tie it with your uh, bachelor's degree you mentioned the skill gap or like i also try to think of it as a gap in artistic vocabulary as i like to think of it that you just i i didn't know enough noses to be able to draw that nose realistically from my imagination or i didn't know enough eye shapes or facial head shapes and i needed to build that vocabulary in order to you know to to provide uh, aid to my imagination to have these things uh, to have recall value with these things so with this uh, kind of interest that you had 
what were your thoughts entering your bachelor's degree what did you do in that degree program and what what were you thinking about the art that you would make uh, going forward from there mm-hmm. well let's see interesting question um but you first of all you're right it's about this data bank right having enough information in your head that uh, when you're drawing something it's sort of well first of all hopefully it's not the first time you've drawn it but uh there's a weird anecdote i i did a lot of life drawing I said, I said, I want to master the human form. So I took all the life drawing I could at school, which was actually hard to do. You had to go out of your way to take it. Um, and then subsequently, they've started to even phase out life drawing in fine art education, which I think is very strange. But, uh, you know, I can see why. There's a lot of stuff, patriarchal history of art and the male gaze and all that stuff. So they sort of phase out the nude model as part of art school. But... Uh, yeah, for me, I did done all this drawing of the human figure, and I sort of saw it as that building that data bank so I could make these people real, right? Like a big research project. I don't know why, but when I was a kid, a lot of my friends who were also artists, um, there was this thing like, can you draw it without any reference? Like it was a goal to be able to draw it from your mind. So uh, so yeah, there was this sense of of packing in all this information and then being able to reconstruct it. So yeah. But, you know, I also did other weird things. Like before I took art, I took um, a lot of anthropology and I took some literature. And uh, I was such a weird kid. I literally did it to improve my Dungeons and Dragons campaign. Like I thought if I take some anthropology and go to these museums, I might find some good stuff I can put in my fantasy type stories. So uh, it was all research for this this kind of project. Yeah, And then when you start to go to school... They they discourage you uh, subtly with this kind of mind control that there are types of art that are worth more and worth less. So illustration was, uh, wasn't was sort of fashionable when you're in a fine arts program. They don't want you to, uh, they want the ideas to be entirely from your own head, not from anyone else's vision. So I was kind of steered away that from that and had to hide that a bit. So it was easy to easier to be academic and just study drawing people and all that. Uh, even though you are flailing for the first few years, like I think four years of art school, if you go in when you're a kid, when you're 20, uh, it's far too early. You take four years, you come out, you barely know anything, right? You're just, I, I couldn't draw when I got out of school. I was just ready to start learning. Yeah. I, I like the point you made about uh, going into it with the mindset that you're doing research for something. Now, um, I, I, I studied something completely different. In my bachelor's, I studied mechanical engineering. And in, and then I went straight away to a master's in mechanical engineering. And that was also motivated by my curiosities at the time. But when I look back at it, and now when I think back at how I did my master's degree, I think exactly this, that I should have had a vision of exactly what I wanted to do afterwards. And then everything I did in that course would be referenced to how I'm going to use it later. So I actually like the fact that you took these different courses and your entry, your curiosity for anthropology came from wanting to design better characters and thinking about different worlds and how things are put together. And even the life drawing was an aid to that. It's even if you don't, you know, like uh, clearly you're not designing sci-fi fantasy covers at the moment, but even then having that kind of a goal in mind and having that kind of goal-oriented education is very self-motivating, right? Like you have good, solid reasons. I might be making it sound a bit more logical than it was. You know, there's always this revision in your head of why I did these things. 
but uh, yeah, I mean, as much as you can know at the time what you think. So I thought, wow, I want to paint these book covers. And uh, little did I know that, um, you know, the publishing industry would completely change and blah, blah, blah. And it just wasn't even a job that a person could have uh, in my and not in my experience anyway, by the time I got out, everything had moved to computer games. And if you, they would hire, they were hiring everyone who could draw at the time that I came out. Um, you know, it was a boom because very few people who were coming out of art school could actually draw right at that time. Cause there was a lot of gluing blocks of wood together and making drawings with sand. And, you know, there was a lot of fine art stuff as well. So if you could draw, you could work in games. There was no one, uh, lined up waiting for you to do book covers. So that dream, uh, you know, what you think you're going to do when a kid has very little uh, connection to what really happens sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So true. Uh, that also the point you mentioned about this overemphasis we have for the value of drawing from imagination and how that's the superior skill as opposed to drawing from a reference or drawing something yeah. that you see. I don't know why that was a meme. I don't know why that was. Uh, it was certainly going around with a lot of the people I hung out with. And maybe that was comics to some extent. That, uh, Or maybe it was. So you see this with, uh, I think, with video game design, which I still follow. I still play video games, even though I don't do that job anymore. There is a whole lot of over design. People just make something as weird as possible. And it it's almost like showing off the depth of your imagination. Look how crazy these characters are. Um and I'm not sure why there's this impulse to be weirder than the next guy just to show off, right? But it does seem to be kind of, there's two, it's an undercurrent, right? Not everyone thinks this way. Uh, we certainly see like the, you know, the superhero, Marvel superhero genre, when they made the movies, they make everything look more real, more normal, right? But in the video game world, uh, we just have these more bizarre monsters, everything is uglier and weirder than than the last one it's like an arms race of imagination so i can sort of see these two impulses right to to stand out and do your own thing yeah yeah so so how did it go for you after the the bachelor's degree uh, did were you pulled towards the video game industry or did you pursue the interest in covers and in D D designs in some way yeah no i, n I never went into illustration um turns out it's a good thing i i mean i have done it i certainly have done it i've done some some book covers um, not those kinds, but literary stuff and science publications. And uh turns out I'm very bad at, at working to order. Uh, so it's a good thing I didn't become an illustrator. I don't really like following people's instructions. I uh, don't know why. It's just in my character. But um, like I said, if you could draw and you were computer literate, they needed you at that time. So everyone I knew who was a, a good, quote unquote, you know, competent artist, uh, went into video games and everybody I knew who couldn't draw went into design and did advertising and graphic design and, um, you know, maybe motion graphics or things. Right. But so if you could draw, you were taken into that world because in video games, uh, nothing exists until you make it like there's not no rock or tree, not even a chair. Someone has to build every single thing from nothing. Right. Unlike film where you just go out and find a place, you have to make that place. So they had this infinite need for people who could invent invent things. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't think that this is necessarily going to be the case for much longer, but there was this phase when, yeah, it was like a gold rush for people who could draw. And and there were a lot of people who were successful comics artists that were going into games or uh, film, of course, was is the 
it's better to work in the movies, but uh, you can't just go straight to that. You need some experience. Yeah, I got I got kind of dragged in just because everyone I knew in college was getting that kind of job. Uh, so that's how school works, right? You, They say, oh, we need 10 more people. Who do you know? And they say, well, I know this guy. And, and so you get taken in. If I didn't have friends, I wouldn't have made the leap. And then 20 years later, I kind of crawl out of that industry. So. <laughs> uh, uh, tell me a little bit about your work in the video game industry. I'm curious. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's see. Well, I mean, uh, I do have a book on that topic that's separate from my Urban Sketcher book. It's kind of funny. Uh, maybe a lot of people don't even know about that. It's a different world, right? The people that care about that kind of art tend not to care about the urban sketching and vice versa. So I I did uh, I did write this book called Designing Creatures and Characters. And my whole thing was this is for the parents of the kid who is obsessed with video games. So the so they can look at this book and say, oh, my God, my, my kid could actually get a job. There's a way he will survive. It was sort of like a, to help them think that there's hope for your game obsessed kid. But anyway, yes, it's two sort of separate worlds. So the the game world, uh, what is it? I mean, we were, I was art directing. So your job is to kind of uh, lead this team of people, but you're just a kid and you're all kids at this phase. There were Nobody knew what they were doing. So we would, uh, there was a lot of flailing around trying to figure out our way and working exceptionally long hours because we all enjoyed what we were doing. Um, so you're trying to make this imaginary world real, but uh, there's no, like imagine you are going to be a digital artist, but you have to design Photoshop at the same time. There's no concept of how Photoshop should work and the software won't run three days out of five in the week. You try to run it and it won't even launch. So you're trying to build the software and what is what is a Wacom tablet? I don't know. Maybe we could have something that's better than a mouse. So they start trying to build that. So you're you're building this house while uh, the whole concept of architecture doesn't even exist and you're doing that at the same time. So it was it was, it was fascinating. It's full of these obsessed uh, geniuses that are trying to do crazy things. But it's also, uh, at least my experience, is a very uh, high stress kind of creative environment. Everyone is pulling in different directions. Uh, everyone has different ideas of what the final image could be. So um, creatively, it's a bit of chaos. Uh, so my approach was, of course, that because I could draw, I will draw everything. Um, so I really put the emphasis on uh, learning to sketch these things. And then you would do a lot of... Uh, People would build a model. You would you would say, this is what we want to build. And then people would build a 3D model. And then you would draw over top of that model to say, no, okay, I didn't, this is what I meant, because it should look more like this. And then they would make changes. So you'd go through this whole iteration process. So you had to learn to draw something as quickly as possible to explain what you wanted. And then uh, to work digitally in all these different programs and medias to to make alterations and, and kind of really get your point across, right? So at every phase it was like, how fast can I explain uh, what I need done here, right? So that's why drawing became this, like drawing quickly became this whole thing for me. It's this weird uh, niche that you fall in that, you know, I only have two hours before a presentation and I need to explain what's going on. So you're drawing maps and sketches of characters and sticking photocopies on their faces because you don't have time to draw that and, you know, taking a photograph of some boxes to say this is the perspective I want and then quickly drawing a castle on top of it you know any any you're looking for what are all the tricks that I can use to get information as quickly as possible so uh, 
So that part was a really interesting kind of background. I, I definitely enjoyed that. Uh, you know, you learn, you were learning incredibly uh, quickly, like learning your craft as you went. Uh, there was no way to come in prepared for how to do this because at the time there was no model. Now we can sort of look, the development environment in games is, is much more settled now. We have tools that are stable. Most people, I would never get the job today, which is why I don't have it anymore. Because you would have to have all the digital skills. You wouldn't draw on napkins, right? You would. You have to actually build something to show somebody what you want. So, yeah, it was a weird window, and I was very fortunate to get it, and I definitely enjoyed it. Um, but, yeah, I think I, I, I did not uh, move along as the ad industry went along. Yeah, there's not really a role for sketchers like there used to be. So it was, I'm glad that I got the chance to do it. Yeah, this uh, this phase that you mentioned is very interesting to me because I've also, since uh, I was very young, I've always been obsessed with video games when it was the uh, the console that connected to your television and then handheld things and the computer as soon as there were CDs and there were computer games, I was into that. And uh, this early phase is very interesting to me because it's like, like you say, like all the tools are being built as you're using them. And there's no there's no formal workflow in place. Everybody's kind of figuring their way out about how should things, how are these things built? And there's so much ambition, but the value is perhaps not yet fully appreciated, like how big this industry could be. Therefore, how formal do we need to be about executing our ideas or treating our ideas or things, things yeah. around that? And there was this early phase when when these tools and these technical capabilities were exponentially increasing every year. So everybody was, the, the basic goal was that the graphics need to be better. The game needs to be more complex. And I almost like how now with the use of phone games and mobile games and iPads, we've gone back to appreciating a lot of the retro features. Mm -hmm. So sure. a lot of people now are again playing 8-bit games because it's not about simply being more realistic, but let's embrace that it's not realistic. It's just a game. And going back to the core tenets of gameplay as the feature that draws the game forward. Yeah, and, and uh, to bring art in, um, to bring artistic influences in, because you want to. Uh, so I, I had always thought, first we need to achieve photorealism. And then we you know, get that out of our system. And then after that, we could start to say what is an artistic expression that's worth doing you know once we know we can and there are genres right like your typical war type situations soldiers and shooting they just want it to be like as real as possible but then uh you know some particularly some of the asian games because they have more expressive history of drawing kind of based art um so you know your your zelda kind of games or um what was that one on the PS4, I think it was, where you're traveling across this desert and it was all this floating character with, uh, you're just like floating across the desert with all these veils and dust blowing. I'm trying to remember the name of this game. So you know, I'll have to edit this out. I sound like a senile old man. But there there are definitely games where we can say the art is what's more important. Um, yeah. And so we couldn't do that until we got past that achievement of simulating reality, you know, to the point where it was convincing. Yeah. Yeah, that was like, so my recent obsession over, like my favorite game over the last three years, perhaps, is this iPad-based game called Monument Valley. I don't know if you've played it or if you've heard of it. Mm -hmm. I've heard of it. I, I haven't played it. but yeah. It's absolutely incredible. So it's based on gameplay and the art is just perfectly complementary to the gameplay because 
the so it's it's like a visual puzzle and you're navigating a character through a, a map and the whole map is the puzzle and it's based on so the art style is uh, an isometric view and it's based on Escher's geometries so there's a lot of impossible geometry in the game and it's just gorgeous like it's absolutely gorgeous how it works and how it optimizes that geometry in order for you to solve like in order to solve the puzzle you have to appreciate the beauty of the art that they've put into the game yeah sounds like a great concept yeah yeah there's a couple uh, there's one that's based on on wind again i can't remember the name but uh there's like the physics of the way wind moves through the game affects everything flowers blow and your character floats and so when they when you have a core concept of what the feeling needs to be like uh, and then everything in the world can revolve around that feeling. That's more, I think that's more true because you're making an experience that isn't real. It doesn't have to be limited by reality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is why I think video games, partially why they're so obsessive to people is that it's this fantasy, right? You feel that you have these powers or you're you're in this place that couldn't possibly be real, but it seems so real because it's responding to you. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. This uh, this way of employing the physics for the purpose of the game also reminds me of this other game. Uh, I don't know if you heard of it. It's called World of Goo, and I loved I loved playing that game because the physics was the game, and yeah. the physics was defined by the goo that you had to construct. Yeah, they come up with a mechanic like a technology, and then uh, it's the ultimate expression of how we can make this uh, engaging. Yeah. 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 I always, I always prefer that kind of project. So uh, uh, you're you're in this industry now. Uh, tell me uh, how how when did you get introduced to the idea of outdoor sketching? Now carrying these baggages of you know the the superiority of drawing from imagination, how did you turn to what would be urban sketching? How did you turn to drawing from references or drawing from you know life observation? How, how did this happen for you? Yeah, though so there's another bias in video games, which is that the character artist is always considered more important than the environment artist, uh, or I mean, I might be dating myself, but when I was, the places I worked, there was always this weird implicit hierarchy that the characters were more important. Because, of course, they're the the people, the story is told through the characters, I guess. So I always drew characters, and I had always done all this life drawing, and I was always interested in defining the characters. And, you know, at some point I realized that I I was just, I really couldn't do the backgrounds. I was kind of avoiding a lot of the world building. Um. So at the same time, I ended up, I was working in San Francisco, and uh, there was a group that had started this thing called Worldwide Sketch Crawl. So Sketch Crawl predated Urban Sketchers by a little bit, but it was a similar idea. People would meet up and draw their environment and then post it online. So, but it was a bit before blogs. It was a little bit earlier. So all this is from the point of view of like, this is, we're talking 25 years ago, right? So it's ancient history. It was a bit before blogs, Sketch Crawl. They used a forum, which you'll still find forums when you want to get information on like ATVs or fishing lures, you'll end up on a forum, right? Like, so it's not a blog. It's this weird semi-interactive thing where there's all these discussion threads. So people would post their art there. And because it was in my city and there were a lot of gamer artists doing it, it was sort of a natural, It's a that, that's how I got my exposure. Like, Let's go out and draw Chinatown. We're going to go to you know, whatever, one of the big parks and and then just walk and draw. So I literally had this tutorial of what urban sketching was all about. You'd go to this club and these guys would talk about how cool this was to draw the environment. And so I realized that, you know, this well, for part of me realized I could make up for this deficiency that I couldn't draw environments. And 
you know, study this way. And another part of me was also that, wow, I'm, I'm living in one of the most interesting cities in the world that I, all I ever do is go to the office. So it was really like a great opportunity to experience the world through drawing, which sounds kind of silly that I would say that because we all get this now with urban sketching. Anyone who's slightly interested in urban sketching is like, yes, you, when you look at the world, lo and behold, there are interesting things if you stop to pay attention. And drawing is the ultimate way to bring in, you know, pay attention and see and observe. So uh, yeah, someone had to show me that. And then I'm like, hey, this is really cool. I, I would like to do more of this. And they only met once a month. Um, so I was going out as often as I could to, to have to do that, to find, discover the city. And then uh, that was right around the time that Urban Sketching came around. So it was just being the right time and place that the internet was making these things happen. And my own interests were in the same place. And then uh, I was having this problem at work that I needed to be able to draw these things. I didn't, I'd never learned to draw perspective. I still don't, I had found many ways in my life to avoid learning to draw perspective. And now I'm old enough, I can just say I'm not going to learn for the rest of my life. So I have all these ways to cheat it. And, and uh, yeah, going out and looking at the thing and just drawing what you see is a whole lot easier than understanding how it's built, or at least it is for me, that you could just look at it and, and compare your drawing to reality. So yeah, so those were all the circumstances that, that started right. that switch. Yeah, I, I I carried that same unnecessary baggage that going uh, like drawing from observation is a lesser skill because so I I was drawing when I was very young like really very young and I would draw really well from references but I was really terrible at drawing from imagination so I for the longest time I carried this with me that I'm not good at drawing I'm just good at quote unquote copying things. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't count. So I would berate myself about it and feel like I'm not doing well enough. And this is a useless skill. What's the point of being able to copy things as such? And uh, you mentioned how now, you know, looking back, uh, well, now it might sound odd that you had to, you had to get quote unquote permission to allow yourself to draw from outdoor references through finding a forum of people doing it. But this was exactly the thing for me. So when I sort of decided that and my need, my entry into urban sketching also came from a very deep need to know how to draw better. Like I used to draw web comics in uh, 2015, which were stick figure comics, and I was obsessed with now learning how to draw because I can't keep. Like I'd been doing stick figures for five years, and I thought it's high time I learn how to draw an environment, how to draw people who look like people, so that you know you can tell better jokes that way. Once you can reference things more accurately than a stick figure. And that's how I got into urban sketching with the idea that maybe if I look at things and I draw and I draw and I draw, I'll build this uh, drawing vocabulary of shapes and lines and different things and perspective will just be imbibed in me because I couldn't for the life of me learn perspective. I tried so much. And I'm sure there, there are people who, who could teach you perspective that are like rolling their eyes, like, uh, you know, that the it's not that hard to sit down and do it, right? And the lengths that we would go to to avoid learning this seem ridiculous. <laughs> it's, it is exactly that way. Like it feels like I went out of my way to, and now I would say the same thing to anybody else that, you know, perspective is easy. I can teach you. Why don't you get it? But I didn't get it for years. But it's a mindset thing. Like I, I, uh, I think I'm a little bit dyslexic, like not to the point where, you know, they say you shouldn't claim disabilities, right? But, uh, you know, I flip numbers around all the time and, and it just it wasn't something that I could grasp. I'm, I'm terrible with certain kinds of logical thinking. 
Um, but it doesn't mean I'm dumb. I can figure out a way to solve the problem or just avoid the problem entirely. Um, so it's bad that if you, you have this ability to adapt and avoid. And Like I could say about your stick figures, uh, you know, if you just stick with them and never learn to draw anything else, that is a kind of freedom that you can just concentrate on storytelling or you're coming up with ideas, live in the realm of ideas. Uh, even for stick figures, I took permission from this webcomic called xkcd.com, which right. has been around since 2002 or 2003, I think. And that's what told me that, you know, even if you don't know how to draw realistically, you can tell a story, you can show human interaction, you can show dynamics, you can show surprise without even needing to draw somebody's eyes or their eyebrows rising. Like you don't need to draw anything like that, but you can convey so much. That artist is brilliant. His idea, I think it's a gentleman his ideas are great uh right so there's so much content it doesn't matter that they're stick figures you know and so that that's admirable that you're that uh, and so this is uh, even in some senses urban sketchers is a model of this that uh you, there are limitations you're putting on yourself saying i'm only in whatever i can do in one session generally like whatever i can do on the spot regardless of weather or time or whatever so the stick figure guy has a set of limitations and then he can just be all about the ideas and not waste his time. Like, I don't need to spend three days with this drawing. I need to spend three days thinking up the drawing and then then do it in 10 minutes. With Urban Sketching, you're saying, um, I'm not going to drag out all my paints and make this amazing rendition of this place. I'm just going to make a sketch. It's actually the same uh, idea of imposing a limit of how far do I want to go down this direction? So I have more room for the other direction, which is living life and experiencing the world instead of like that guy might do a better painting, but he sat in one place for four days, whereas I saw the entire city, right? So who had a better time in this city? He might have, he might win some fancy pants art show, but I got to see the entire city. So yeah, there's positive, every direction you do, what is, I don't know what, there's got to be some saying about every door you open closes another, right? So, yeah. I, I agree. I agree with that sentiment so much. Uh, I quote it in a slightly different way in my workshop I because I also draw just with one pen. And in a lot of ways, it's uh, limiting. But I talk about how the things that limit us also offer us a lot of freedom if you just change your perspective a little bit. So, like you mentioned, urban sketching limits you in the sense that you're going to draw this now in one session sitting here today in this moment with whatever you have, and that will be the end of the drawing. But the freedom it offers you is that now you can think of this drawing as the end. You don't have to have a singular idea of what is a finished drawing. You don't have to have a sing you don't have to give it four or five days. Perhaps you're not suited to that. We're talking about different learning styles. And that's also something that's kind of evolved over the last 20 years, this acknowledgement that people learn and that people express themselves through different styles and that those can be valid too. And if we just aid them instead of getting them to conform, then they can perhaps learn to express themselves in better and better ways. So more and more art styles are coming out from this and people are feeling less obliged to be able to invest in a studio and oils and canvases in order to be able to say that they are artists and people are able to appreciate that art in different ways also. So again, these forums and these different, different uh, websites and social media and Instagram, they've offered us chances to share our work. Whereas earlier there were all these institutions and gatekeepers. And to find the people that find those other people like that are, that are that kind of learner. The people that are attracted to sketching because they want to make those instant 
captures. Yeah, so you you find this. So we say, oh, the urban sketcher is this huge thing, but it's actually very thin on the ground, right? Like there's a two people in every city, so it's huge as a group, but we're split all over the world because actually we're a bunch of rare individuals that have this unique passion. So yeah, the opportunity to bring all those people together and make a worldwide movement is definitely post-internet, right? That that just couldn't have happened prior to that. Yeah, and and the other thing about the you know the value of this sketch is the immediate. Uh, you know, impression, I think that's also couldn't have happened with quite so much passion, except now we have Instagram and phones in our pockets and we're as a society obsessed with video and film that creates the, it's the Petri dish that culture of sketching can grow in because now we are as opposed to this other way of thinking. There's always these oppositional people that are going to say, well, everybody loves photos and anyone can just quickly take a picture and we're obsessed with pictures of everything. There's so many photos in our Every day we must see a thousand photos. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go slower. I'm going to limit what I get to the information I see and gets into my head rather than just collecting it all with one click of a button, right? So you have this opposition to photography. That yeah, we're gonna, yeah, we're the idea of limiting the information is such an important idea. I, I, I like to think of it as having a media diet of some kind that you can't simply be taking in everything that is thrown at you. You have to carefully uh, sort of curate your own mental feed and think about why you're taking in what information and be able to process that more deliberately, more consciously. And yeah, these these forums made possible by the internet, this idea of communities coming together and then slowly growing, even though they are separated geographically, people with no expectation perhaps, in the early 2000s with no expectation of actually meeting in real life or thinking what that might be like. But simply the idea that you can connect with someone on the other part of the world with something that is interesting to you. That's how I discovered the urban sketching community while I was walking around Chicago feeling a little bit ashamed of this idea that I'm just going to draw things looking at people. That's so weird. I need to be Mm -hmm. sneaky about this so that nobody finds out that I'm doing this really strange thing. And maybe I'll call it sneaky art. Maybe that's how we'll do it. Like, I'll just draw quickly. I'll get out of the way. Nobody will notice me do anything. And now, then I find feel, out that... I, I want to interject. Do you ever feel stuck that you've branded yourself like that? So you... you I, I totally get that story and I felt all those same things. But then now you're beyond that, I assume. You no longer feel this kind of weird, uh, like you have to hide this thing that you're doing, presumably. But you're now internationally known... I've I've sort of expressed this to people in ways also that in uh, it's changed in two distinct ways. One of the ways it's changed is that the meaning of what sneaky art is has expanded in my own mind because I've had to do it in different conditions. So it started with this idea that I'm the one who is sneaky, making art and getting out of there without being noticed. But slowly as so what it made me do was that it made me it made the location that I was drawing at the where I was sitting to draw it, almost as important as what I was drawing because I just had to be sneaky about it. I couldn't face the idea that somebody would see me draw. So I would pick these places and the spot where I would sit would become as crucial as what I'm looking at. And what that did was that it made me think again and again about where I want to sit. I can't take that first position that I think would be the best to draw this building from because I'm going to be conspicuous. I need to be inconspicuous. So second choice, third choice, fourth choice. And what that did was it made me look at things that I previously would not have looked at. 
It made me look at it from angles that I wouldn't have previously considered. And then, and because I obsess over what I'm doing and I write about what art I make a lot and I'm trying to express myself verbally, this expression came out one day in my mind that it's not just me being sneaky. It's also the world that is sneaky. So now I think of sneaky art as art that exists in the world, but it's really sneaky in the sense that it's not out there. It's not showing itself. You have to do the job of looking at it. Yeah, you have to find it. Yeah, At a very ordinary place and a very ordinary day, looking at very ordinary people doing ordinary things, and you have to notice it. And it's there waiting for you to notice it. So this idea of me being sneaky has now changed to the world itself in its complexity, in its richness, in the flux of all these interactions that we have. The world is offering up its art and creating, like it's bursting out of it, waiting for an observer. No, fascinating. That's interesting. That's interesting. I, I still retain the original, uh, I guess this is just a part of my uh, personality. I still retain that hesitation of being noticed. So wherever I'm drawing, I do want to be in the most inconspicuous place I can be. And a part of my mental uh, track is always running along. Is somebody going to look at me? Is somebody going to? So if somebody walks past me, I still have the first instinct to shut my book. And it's so silly. I don't know why it's there, but it's there and it's very strong. And you would, you would think you would get, you would think that that would get weaned out of you eventually with enough exposure. It's like that, uh, you know, when you go for exposure therapy, they do a little bit of bee sting on you and, and then another, so you gradually you get used to the toxin. Yeah. That's something we have to get. That's what Urban Sketchers as a society, the, the way the clubs tend to run, it's great to get people through that because you have the sharing time, right? At the end of the, everyone goes and we all draw, everyone sees different things. And then at the end of the session, we, the, the traditional thing is people spend some social time just passing around the sketchbooks and admiring, right? So you get that inoculation when you when your sketchbook is handed to the next guy and they start talking with enthusiasm about what they see. Uh, it's taken out of your hands almost, and you're forced to experience compliments. You're forced. You're you're forced to sit there and go, people, people like, oh, I didn't, yeah, I didn't catch that. You got this view that I never would have thought of. So gradually, I think, hopefully, you build up some defense to the fear of being caught drawing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's very true. So that's why I really, although I'm uh, I'm averse to human interaction in a lot of ways. Like I would I would prefer it if nobody ever said anything to me. <laughs> a lot of times in my mind I think I believe I honestly believe this. But uh I love being in urban sketching groups and I love being around other sketchers and sketching with them. I've just from the first time I did it, it was beautiful to me and uh, I think I'm more brave, I think, when I'm in an urban sketching uh, sketch crawl, as opposed to when I'm sketching on my own, yeah. how likely am I to sit in one place and draw? I think I would be more likely if I knew that there are other sketchers around me, maybe 10 feet away, maybe 30 feet away or yeah, somewhere absolutely. on the horizon. Yeah, you're not, you're not the strange, solely individual weirdo. You're not the lone wolf crazy guy. You're in a group, right? And um, James Gurney says actually that. He says when you're going out sketching and you're worried about this, just tell people you're taking a class, even if you aren't. Like he's whatever. He's an old guy, right? They're like, you are taking a class, but whatever. He just says, yeah, yeah I'm taking a class. And then everyone gets it that you, oh, you're being forced to draw because you have to do your homework. Okay, I get it. <laughs> but you, that's like, uh, that's a social permission to draw that's acceptable. So when you say, oh, I'm with the group and we're all drawing, like you might see some other artists in the park today, then, then you're not a weirdo. You're in a, you're in a group. Yeah. yeah. But we, <laughs> but that business of, 
this business of draw, what, being braver when you draw in a group is absolutely true. Uh, we've been in some sketchy places, that pun unintended, and sat down to draw because we're in a group. And when you think about it later, you're like, maybe that wasn't the brightest idea, but you are overconfident because you're together. Uh, you you yeah. kind of borrow on the confidence of other people who are incidentally also borrowing confidence from you being there. And it's this loop, which has, which is feeding itself. It's very interesting. He's, he's drawing because you're drawing, but you're also drawing because he's drawing. But then uh, that other thing that you say, that feeling of um, you're, when you're with other people and you're allowed to draw, like we definitely, everyone commented this when we first went to the sketchers workshops, we would draw during the meals. You're so obsessed about drawing. You would start sketching while you're eating. So you can't normally can't. The other person is going to be offended that you you don't care about the meal they made or you're you won't have conversation with them. But with a group of artists, you're allowed to ignore the other guy and draw. That's a tremendous permission to be yourself. That you can't. So when you're when you're traveling with other people, I've already mentioned this in other other uh, interviews. You know how do you get that time to draw because you feel bad about holding the other person back. But when you're traveling with sketchers, then the other person is the third wheel. You know, it's their fault that they're not a sketcher. <laughs> this is what we're here to do. We're here to sketch. So we're going to do it all day long. Yeah, that's a very empowering, right? So that is the the workshop high that's quite, uh, yeah, that's why I would still go to these things. Like, it's an incredible experience. It's great fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, uh, we were speaking about early forums and the early internet and the way it worked. So I want to go to how your blog started. It has a very nice title. All of your projects, incidentally, I love the titles that you come up with. It's it's some kind of great marketing skill you have. So your blog is titled Citizen Sketcher, which is just a fantastic title. Tell me how you came up, not only with the title, but the idea for starting this blog. And did it happen with the urban sketching movement or did it predate it a little bit? Yeah, um, so I had been blogging before Urban Sketching, and I'm trying to remember when I actually stuck that title on it. So in the old days, when you went on a forum, you had to create an identity. And it was kind of weird that everyone didn't use their own names, or a lot of times they didn't. You'd use an online handle. And I'm talking about art forums. So people used to, a lot of the video game guys, you'd be posting up your drawings of characters, and you'd have some name, like you'd be, you know, Laser Sword 37 And maybe that came from gaming that everyone had a, a tag and a name. So I had this idea that I, and maybe it was, it was also a bit like you, that I'm a little bit embarrassed to, to put myself out. For years, I didn't have my picture on the blog. For many, many years, my face was nowhere on there because it was about the art, not about me. Uh, so yeah, so you had this thing that I would need an identity. And like you say, a brand, I need a brand. So it's a bit of a portmanteau, the idea of citizen journalism. So that definitely comes from urban sketching. And that definitely comes from Gabby. Um, you interviewed Gabby the other day. Um, he's a journalist and he had brought to this organization this idea that we were reporting from the field. So that citizen journalism is part of there. But it also, from a marketing point of view, it always helps to have something that clicks in people's minds. So I always thought that it's a bit like the movie Citizen Kane. So you you have a reason to remember it, even if you don't know why you have a reason to remember it. So that's part of just a marketing hook yeah but uh i liked that that mix of this the citizen sketcher instead of citizen journalist tells you what's going on here that we're reporting that i'm and also uh, another aspect in joke that i was going through this process of all the places i worked in games i was moving from city to city in the states and i never did get a green card and had never been able to immigrate 
So I'm back in Canada now, which turns out I'm quite happy with that, <laughs> that I didn't live in the States during our last uh, whole season of politics. But anyway, um, so it was a bit of a joke that I was not a citizen of any of the places I was sketching, that I was actually being barred from being a citizen. Um, yeah. <laughs> so there's that too, which is an inside, inside story. Yeah. So, uh, but, uh, so how did the, how did your blog citizen sketch work in those days? How did like, like it feels almost like a different time and a lot of people will not even be able to understand how blogs worked because this was before, most importantly, it was before social media and before social media had taken over our lives. Like the internet these days is reduced to four sites that are almost even regurgitating content across themselves. There's TikTok, there's Facebook, there's Instagram, there's YouTube, and there's copies of TikTok on Instagram and Facebook and copies of Instagram on TikTok. And so that's the internet is like, it's grown hugely bigger, but it's also our exposure to how we explore the internet has just been whittled down to these social media websites. So what was it like in those early days? Uh, What were some of the things you started to do as like what responsibility did you feel once you had taken on the title of citizen sketcher? How did you represent that on your blog? Mm, interesting. Uh, responsibility is an interesting word. I I don't know that I felt any responsibility. So uh, I always saw it as uh, so my friend uh, Matthew Bram. He says he had this thing about. Uh, I think he used the phrase "a public promise to practice." So we have made a public promise that we're going to do this. So it's a kind of. Uh, motivation like having a gym buddy you if there's a guy you go to the gym with you're gonna gotta get get up and put your damn shoes on because you told him you're gonna be there so there's that aspect that if you say in public you're gonna do it then you're gonna do it right and that goes through i need that i am essentially a lazy person i have a deep addiction to video games if i had no other things to do i wouldn't do anything so i really need that motivation from other people but um and it doesn't have to be much. It can be one person that's reading it. So I didn't feel when I started the blog a, a great, you know, um, I didn't feel a lot of pressure to communicate. Uh, it was just I wanted to do these things and I wanted somebody to help me do it. So if I start doing it in public, then uh, then I get that. So, yeah, there's always a little bit of this sort of enlightened self-interest that I recognize people are are interested in the topic and we're all learning together. Uh, but I mainly want the motivation. So I get what I get and you get what you get and it works together for both of us. It keeps you going. Yeah, I think I don't think people will stick with these things. You can't go into it and say, I'm going to do it to make any money, right? That that does not work. That concept, I think, I think didn't occur to anybody in those days. Like there was no idea that you could make money on the internet from writing well, things. Uh, even when I started, people knew there were political blogs. So right. I think the first things that took off were politics. So there were, and there, and people knew about affiliate marketing when I started. So there was this thing that you could make money with your blog, like, but people didn't know, just like they used to say you could, I mean, they still say you could make money with YouTube uh, because it's this advertising. Actually, it wasn't affiliate marketing. I mean, the original day was just um, ad exposures, right? That you, you would make money by hooking up to Amazon click things and it would run ads in the sidebar. I never did any of that. I didn't want the distraction. I couldn't be bothered. I knew it was never going to make enough money. It was all a scam. Uh, But also I didn't want to sort of sully the message with advertising. Right. So I never did any of that. 
but there was that was a in the world that you could you know you could quit your day job and just get lots of clicks and make money that way but um yeah so i mean i think like most people i started on a different platform i was on Flickr first a lot of urban sketches were on Flickr first because that's where gabby started the forum or the Flickr group and brought a lot of people together that way and that was a even more kind of passive sharing you would put up pictures one at a time and but it had this number you could see how many people viewed it and you can see how many people liked it. So you had these two numbers. And you, at the beginning, you were inspired that your views were going up. Like someone's actually looking. And then you were inspired that someone's actually liking. And then someone would leave a comment and your brain was just blown that you were reaching other people. Right. So, uh, so I did have that before I started the blog. And I probably wouldn't have if I didn't, didn't have that. But, uh, but you had that intro through that. So from Flickr, then I'm like, okay, this works. I get the idea. I'm going to use this diary to do that. Yeah. And I had been doing it with life drawing. Uh, and over the years, I've gradually removed the life drawing and just and turned up the urban sketching. Um, again, it's like the video game stuff. I, I never posted my video game art on my sketching blogs because it's a different audience. They they don't generally care about the two things. Um, to some extent, it's the same, somewhat the same with life drawing. There's a I don't know. There's that dichotomy that should we have naked people popping up in our drawings of teacups and, and gardens, right? So, you know, eventually I put a wall between those things. But uh, yeah, did that answer the question? That's how, that's why, or that's how I drifted into it. Everything in my life is I sort of um, find something that works for me and then get obsessed with it. So yeah, so the, the posting was a way to keep you going. It was a way to um, force you to try to find something more interesting than what you did last time. So it's a great uh, structure, like, oh, I've already drawn that, so I can't draw that again. I'm going to draw something new. you know. And, uh, so, yeah, that whole thing that became, that that is what's great about Urban Sketchers is uh, it definitely worked for me. Like, I, I tell everybody who wants to learn to draw to join an Urban Sketchers club. It's, the, it's like the best motivation. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I share that mixed uh, idea of motivation, you know, where you know that this is what you want to do, but that's not enough to get you to do it regularly because there is then inherent uh, lethargy is how I think of it. It's not like uh, it's, it's just you just want to stay as you are and you don't want to move out of your inertia, but you're yeah. waiting for something that will charge you out of your inertia. And if yeah. it comes, then you're overjoyed to to follow it. And, and fear, and fear of failure as well, right? Fear that your drawings are going to suck. And of course, so this was the whole point about the, the comment about age 19. I finally said, okay, my drawings are no good, but they aren't going to get any better if I don't start. I don't know why it took that long to figure that out. Right? Someone could have told me that this is the way the world works. So yeah, you need, uh, you have to get over something to help you through the through the time when you hate your drawings, which is going to be two years or three years or five years where your drawings are no good. So you have to have something to take you through that. So starting a blog is probably not the thing if you're a total beginner, because then you're doing your, your failure in public. But I had uh, art forums where you disguised your identity. And then I had Flickr where it was really kind of at a distance. And then finally I was ready to do it somewhat under my own persona. Yeah. So you, you, it pulls you this whole idea of other people pulling you through the bad part till you can finally get on your own legs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This, the motivation you get from these little numbers is really important because like you say, like it, 
it helps you through the bad parts. And I think it was really beneficial even for me in the early internet when you had a distinct sense that your online identity could be entirely separate from your real life identity, your real life social mm-hmm. circles, your real life networks. Mm-hmm. So uh, I had a I had an alt name, like I didn't I didn't go by my own name for the longest time. And once those two things merged, it became kind of strange for me at first to post on my Facebook, knowing that my real friends and my real family is here and I'm posting a drawing or a comic or mm-hmm. a joke or yes. like I used to write a lot of humor back then. So, and stories, and it just felt bizarre to share it with people who actually know me in real life because that separation helped me to helped me to express myself without thinking about how how people I know are going to regard it like anonymity on that early internet was such a boon so tell me a little bit about specifically about this like I want to know how that the when the urban sketchers uh things started there was the Flickr, there was a blog how did how was it then for you how was the internet then for you hmm. well I mean I think that is exactly how you described it that you you didn't have to be yourself you could put out this persona there was that uh and, but it was also and this thing that I mentioned before about finding these little pockets of people that had your shared interests. So there was that. Uh, so those are all the things that made it, uh, you know, the perfect venue to do it. I mean, I also went to a lot of live life drawing. Um, when I was working in San Francisco, you could go life drawing every night. It's uh, just such an artistic town. I would maybe go three, sometimes four times a week. And um, But you go to these things and people sort of make this idea that it's a social but it's totally not life drawing you you're there's a, such a short time span you're focused on your work and then people pack up instantly like they're packing up before the thing's even done which is a pet peeve of mine i hate it when people start packing up before the pose is finished and then they're out of there like a shot nobody talks to anybody so it wasn't social so he uh, so there's so that's a weird introvert thing to say the internet was more social than real life because at least people would talk about the art, you know. So us introverts like having control over the amount of in, of interface we have with people. So the internet and podcasts, it's perfect. You can be like, you seem like you're a sociable guy because we're both in our closets of the laptop, so we don't have to. <laughs> yeah. So that was the that I think those are the things that that made the internet magic. Um, I mean, meeting all those people on Urban Sketchers. Uh, Gabby really was a genius for bringing this together. And I'm just casually mentioning him because you did a whole podcast on him. So people should listen to him say it in his own words. But uh, he brought all these people together. And then you suddenly realize that that uh, you're in this club that's really kind of amazing. And like you really lucked out to get this opportunity. And then you, when we got a chance to go to these workshops and you start to meet other people with these same obsessions. So, you know, to find a club of people that do your own thing. That's what the internet gives you. So, and and I'm sure we all have that in in all kinds of ways. Like uh, for a while, I was growing orchids, and there's a Facebook group on not just orchids, but I grew them in water, um, hydroponically with no dirt. So there's a club for just that, just orchid growers who don't use dirt. It's called full water culture, uh, which is different than partial water culture. Because anyway, whatever. So that's weird, right? That there you can find your clan, whatever it is. So that. That's that's the part, and that's that's why I started it, and uh, that you have this audience that that cares about your your thing, and that you care about their thing, and it's just you make friends instantly because you have something in common, and you have none of the downsides of having to like go to their place, right, and have awkward conversations. So yeah, 
yeah yeah i fully i fully vibe with that very much uh, let let's talk about a really uh, amazing big project you started because and i'm calling it those words because it helped me enormously and i recommend it to everybody all the time and that's one week 100 people again a fantastic title by the way so uh, i was reading your blog and i found a quote about uh, the time that i think this is about the time that you started doing this and i want to read that out for uh, all the listeners uh because again i agree with it and i want to share how so the quote is um i i decided for one week that i'll be 10 minutes late for everything i would skip one or two trains and sketch people waiting on the platform or go to the movies and get a few drawings of the people in line queuing up became my favorite thing i'd go to the bank or the grocery store with my sketchbook and uh, unquote uh so this i i just love this quote because this is exactly how i've become since i became an urban sketcher i've always been motivated by drawing people in in action people doing things something interesting and since i became an urban sketcher i love being early at everything i go to and spending an extra i'm at the airport and i'm happy at the airport because oh i'm going to get half an hour before my flight and i'm going to draw people and that more i, I just love that aspect of it The airport is the best because they can't leave. They have they can't even leave the gate. They have to sit there and they have to, to sit there. Yeah. And it's also a really delightful place and pre-covid this was delightful but now it's almost scary that you don't know where they are coming from. So you have very diverse group of people who you would never otherwise just run into if you were simply in your neighborhood you might not run into such a diverse group of people who have no business being around each other other than the fact that they want to get on this plane and go to this city together they don't know each other they come from different parts the reasons their reasons for going on this flight might be different so you have endless diversity at an airport and they're all there they're they're calm and they're sitting and or they're standing and you can draw them and that that's was one of my favorite things about airports which unfortunately is all the negative reasons to go to airports in these times <laughs> So tell me about this project the one week 100 people how did you think about it how did it begin and uh, how like how did it grow after that and as usual there's a couple of things rolled together so uh one of the thing I mean, people there's there's different kinds of urban sketchers there's the kind that only draws the people and won't draw the buildings and the kind that draws these empty streets with nobody there's no like the city's been hit by a bomb and everyone's gone so and i've done both phases right and i tended to draw people and not the background or vice versa because you only have so much time so you pick which one you're going to do but anyway i always thought that people need to tackle this issue of drawing people because they find it hard and they're afraid of it so we need to get them to get over the hump do lots of work fast so how do you get them to do lots of work i always believe in goals quantity goals quantity is more important than quality if you judge yourself by quality you'll always fail because your first efforts are bad you're disappointed and you don't do them and then you don't do enough and you stop if you only judge yourself by quantity and don't even look at the drawings right the ideal thing is that you'll do all 100 and never even look at them just flip the page and just keep drawing so you then you get through the practice phase i want to usher you through the practice phase or at least give you exposure to it without allowing yourself to enter the judgmental phase So by saying that it's you only have a week and then we actually I did this I'm doing this with um Liz Steele was uh, we worked together. So it's not even a week it's actually 5 days because uh she has a, a um her church they don't work on weekends. They have a prohibition against work. So she says, "Well, I, we can call it a week but I'm not going to work on the weekend." So I'm like, "Well, if you're going to do it in 5 days, then I'll do it in 5 days too." 
So the time limit and the quantity goal are two things that are an amazing teaching tool. And it's the same that I, you know, that's what figure drawing is where you go to the class and you do three minute poses and five minute poses. It, it gets you through the judgment phase. It forces you to just do the work like a musician doing their scales or, um, I've been using this analogy lately about weightlifting that uh, nobody, ex you can't just walk up to that weight and lift it. You know, you can't do it. You know, you're not, you don't judge yourself that you can't lift that weight. It's obviously impossible. So you have to do the labor first before you get there. Right. So that there's that, that turning it into a, a measurable thing where you will always succeed because you just have to make your number and you win, you win the game. So this comes also, I think from all these years of designing role-playing games, that there's this concept in uh, the world out there called gamatization, where you, you uh, if you look up gamatization, and it's, it's a bit of an older meme, but it was like a thing people were writing about for a while. That if you turn any task into a game and have a way to keep score, then that motivates people. And various, you know, psychologists have studied this thing about just putting points on something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like I tell people all the time about the value of fake medals and badges. So I have this running app and it gives me a, a little badge if I run three times a week. And it's like, it's not a real badge, but I love that I get it for so many weeks. And I'm like, yeah, I've got it 50 times because I've done like, it's a silly little number, silly little counter. But if you can use that to motivate yourself, then it can have very real benefits. Yeah. And they all got that from video games. It was uh, definitely this study on gamatization that uh, the initial work on that. Um that sort of brought that to the fore. Like people always talk about the 10,000 hours study. This was that kind of study that when it got popularized, this concept entered into the world. So yes. Uh, so those are the sort of things that go into the idea of we only have a week and you have to hit a hundred people. Um, yeah. And then the, and then it also brings in this, this thing you mentioned about passive sketching that you just to introduce you to the idea that you'll have one pen and a little book in your pocket at all times as a way to finishing it. Um, something I was going to say about sneaky artists is that it also it appeals to me as well this idea that you're you're stealing time to do your thing that I'm going to sneak in a sketch. So this business of I'm coming early and before my friends get there, ah, I have stolen some time to have fun and do my thing. Yeah. Or when I'm going to the DMV and I'm going to stand in line, actually I like this because I I'm going to steal this time for myself. So. There's that aspect as well. So I want to expose people to all these feelings of like winning, winning through seeing your number go up and winning through, look at all this drawing I got done. I never did this much drawing in my life. So if I can trick you into experiencing it, then maybe you will do it on your own later, right? I give you the, the keys to the car and now you're off on your own. So yeah, so that's the, and also, also it's like, who has time to do this? Who has this thing of I'm going to be 10 minutes late for everything. You actually can't do it your whole life. Or you turn into one of these people everybody hates. And they start giving you a fake time for when you're supposed to get together. So uh, put that all. You say, um, it's only a week. I can tell my spouse, you know, I'm not doing dishes for this week. You'll, you'll live. I'm, I'm going to do the art instead. And to be selfish because it's only a week. So there, that's the aspect as well. That the time frame also says when it's over, you have to go back to your responsibilities. So that, that was other, another part of it that, that was wrapped in there. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea of quantity over quality, well, at least in, you know, this, the short practice phase, like not necessarily for life, but in chunks of time, like that's 
also a very important attitude adjustment. Like I feel like a lot of people see that if it's not quality, it's not worth me doing. So they put a, a what I like to call a very high premium on the act of starting to draw something. It has to be this good. It needs to be worth my time because now you're thinking of art as something that's going to take two, three hours. This is the thing you did today other than your work primarily. And doing these sketches, doing quick sketches, it reduces the idea of what is the premium? What does it cost for me to make a little drawing? If it's just 10 minutes, what's the, what, how, why can't I waste 10, why can't I quote unquote waste 10 minutes? It doesn't cost so much. So it becomes a little easier and putting yourself through the practice phase. Also the implicit uh, lesson here is to look at your art as something improvable over time as a craft rather than as a genius sort of talent kind of thing, which you either have or you don't have. So there's either a point to do it or you might as well never do it at all. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I think that idea of genius is created by artists that are trying to, like it's protectionist. It's, it's false. It's completely false. And it's created by these people who want to say, I'm a genius and you're not. So they're, they're gatekeeping. They're saying, don't even try, don't even bother because you're not going to get here, which, you know, it's, I see this thing about why would I do it unless I can do it well. That's why I didn't start until late in life. But uh, then I also look at it from this weightlifting analogy that, I mean, you know, you're not going to be able to do it until you develop the skills. So you have to, you have to have this mindset of skill building first. So those are ways to trick yourself into doing it. Yeah. And then this thing about friction, it's totally true. It's like, we all want to exercise more and we probably don't. So if I get up in the morning and, put my gym clothes on right away, then I'm far more likely to actually do it, right? If I take a shower and get dressed and get ready for the day, then I'm not going to go and get sweaty, right? So the idea of having the, the drawing stuff in your pocket all the time, that's, that's reducing the friction to start, right? As well as what you say about, you know, thinking, okay, I'm not going to start until I do a masterpiece. That's incredible friction. That's fear is going to hold you back, but also just like having the stuff and uh, knowing that it's going to be spontaneous is the other, like you're, you're standing on a, the edge of the water slide on a slippery slope. Right. So, yeah. And then once you get started, you trick yourself, then maybe you do spend a couple hours once you start. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. It, and it's even, even when, uh, so I'm I, like, I, we were talking about how I'm hesitant to draw because of being conspicuous, that feeling of uh, uncertainty or whatever it might be described as, it lasts only until I put pen to paper. The moment I've started to draw, I'm in that other world. So yeah. that the commitment of can I give this even five minutes is this fear that exists only until you begin. Once you start, that five minutes turns to an hour and you enjoy that one hour even and there's no time lost in any sense. Uh, and you, you talk about permission a lot, giving yourself permission to do this. And so that that's, that's uh, when you say, okay, I've got to get my 100 done. Then you can get over a bit of that fear. I started to do things like stand at the top of an escalator and draw the people coming up the escalator. So we have these really long ones in our metro station. That some of them are quite far underground. So there's this huge escalator. So they literally can't get off. While they, once they get on, they are coming on. So it's a bit obnoxious. I'm standing there drawing them until they get up. And some of them will give you a dirty look when they get to the top and brush by you. Right? But I have you trapped. So I will only do that during one week 100 people. Because I've given myself permission that I have it's, I, it's not my fault. Someone's making me do this. I have to get a hundred done. 
I I give uh, I tell myself this about uh, so it's a little twisted. I don't have I don't think of them as a captive uh, subject, but um, I look at people at traffic lights and I do the same thing. That mm-hmm. and here I'm imposing a different kind of standard. So because they're at a traffic light, I know that they're going to be gone in maybe tops fifteen seconds. They the light will change and they'll have crossed and they'll be gone. So what this does to me is it forces me to jump at it. I don't have the time to afford yes. second thoughts. Yeah. There is yeah. no, there's simply, I, I can tell myself this thing that, you know, you might want to hesitate and maybe you're smart for hesitating, but unfortunately you're doing traffic light people today and there's no time to hesitate. So now all you can do is just get into, again, it's a constraint in a sense. Oh, I have to get to hundred people this week. It's an enormous load on me, but the freedom is that there's no way out. You're just going to have to do it. So just get on with it. Yeah, exactly. And and it gets you over. There's another thing it gets you over, which is the waiting for the right person. So like you'll say, oh, then that one's not interesting enough. That, I, I'm going to wait for someone with a dog. It never happens that it's the right person. So it gets you over that as well, because when that light changes, they're gone. Yeah, exactly. The right person is, again, just another way of having a higher premium on what is worth drawing. It, this person is not interesting enough, but simply doing it, you might you might discover something about it that was interesting. So many drawings have made. It's only at the end of it I'm, that I'm able to uh, like verbalize or vocalize what about it attracted me to it. Yeah, and your uh, who is your subway artist? You talked to that lady who does the New York subways. Yeah, 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 uh, Sarah. Sarah. Yeah. So that it, you don't know what's interesting about that person until you start the drawing. And uh, it's the it's the finding that will if you just if you say I'm only going to draw this person in my mind you'll never find them, but if you walk around the city or sit on the subway and the people come to you, then things will happen you didn't you could never have planned that this person is going to get on and they have a crow on their shoulder or whatever right, so you get to, which is a thing that can happen in the New York subway so you yeah you're opening yourself up to the universe what it will bring you. Exactly right. Like you have to have, there's a certain amount of faith involved. You go out without a distinct plan about maybe, maybe you have a location plan, but you don't know exactly where you're going to sit. You don't know exactly who you're going to be drawing or what you will find that day. But you have to have a bit of faith here that something will show up as long as I also show up. Sometimes that thing shows up halfway through the drawing. An interesting person comes and stops exactly where my blank space is. And then I can put them in and then the whole drawing is transformed by their incidental presence that five five minutes. Yeah, it's exactly like you didn't. Yes, it's exactly the person that you knew that you should have known you wanted, and then they get given to you. Yeah. I've watched some uh, street photography. Sorry, I almost interrupted you before. This is a bad habit of mine. Just tell me if I'm wrong. But um, it's uh, uh, I've watched some street photography guys, and they have lots of good stuff to say about this this business of trolling for inspiration, but also the the craft of setting up just enough that this is the for- format that I want this accident to occur in. Like here's the shaft of light that's coming down on the staircase and there behind it, there's a traffic light. And so I get this reflected color and now I'm going to sit here until an amazing person comes by. So they know how to lay, they lay the trap and then they get spontaneity. So they have that faith that when it happens, it's going to be amazing because they've, they've got some part of it is planned and some part of it is an accident. So, yeah, I definitely get that from street photography. 
Yeah, absolutely. I feel like my urban sketches are the same way that um, I I draw urban scenes with respect to the people there. Like I don't have any interest in drawing a cafe that's empty or a street that's uh, completely devoid of any kind of human presence. I don't like I, I think of these urban structures with respect to the human context, like the human context gives it meaning in my idea of uh, of urban life and urban uh, urban setups the urban environment itself so some a lot of the sketches it looks incredibly fortuitous that this person is just happened to be standing exactly there when you were making this sketch and everything looks perfect but it's the other way around like i knew that i want something to happen in this part of my page so i'm going to draw things around it and I'm going to wait for that moment that somebody comes and fills this space and gives it the magic. And then I'll be ready for it. So being ready for that kind of magic to appear and being ready to capitalize on it is part of being an artist in that sense. And that that how often your faith gets rewarded is highly underrated. People think you have to be tremendously lucky, but it's so common that you'll find something beautiful once you go out to look for beautiful things. If you're if you're at all interested in people, it doesn't take long for something great to come out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. So true. Another project you started and uh, you've compared one week hundred people as a sprint, and this other project thirty by thirty watercolor as a marathon. This analogy is very interesting to me. So, with this analogy in mind, can you tell me a little bit about how the thirty by thirty event started, how you conceptualized it, and how it's grown over the years? Yeah. So. Uh... 30 by 30 direct watercolor is, uh, yeah, it's 30 drawings in 30 days. So one week, 100 people is obviously just a week. But with the 30-day period, that really is a lot longer, right? So it's a different audience, of course, not just that it's it tends to be landscape versus people that actually it doesn't. Uh, people draw everything. So that's not even true. It's a different audience because it's painters versus sketchers, maybe. Um, but uh, yeah, the... So I do this with uh, Uma, who you've you've talked to uh, on the cast before, I'm sure, right? So this is another reason I do these things because uh, with Liz and Uma, I wanted what I really want to do is draw with them for a period of time. So we started an event so we can do something together. So it's that same thing of, of using other people to motivate yourself, uh, and hopefully we're doing the same. So it's sharing, but um, we wanted people to experience a couple of things. So. Daily practice in watercolor is very different than episodic, like doing a drawing once every couple of months, because watercolor is so instinctive. You you don't see the color you're mixing with watercolor. You've your your source color is in the pan, and then the mix is in the water, and you don't see the color till it comes out dry, right? Uh, so a watercolorist has to know their pigments at an instinct level. I. I describe it like those samurai movies where they say hammer the steel that's the color of the cherry blossoms like what does that mean you don't know what you're going to get unless you know it by instinct so daily practice is just a huge change like the ability to develop that sensitivity like a musician would just say yes of course i practice every day like what are you talking about you have to because it's music it has to come out of your fingers and, and you have to feel it can't be a technical process so, but artists, for some reason, don't uh, have this idea of doing scales, doing doing practice pieces. So there's that, that we wanted people to experience that. But then the other thing about the marathon is that you get tired. You you start out, you're a little stiff, and you 
you get into it and you're getting excited and then it's like, well, this is a lot of work and I still have 15 days left. And so when you get tired, you start to not care so much. So it's another way to get through that fear that I'm talking about, that resistance. Then you're sometimes I find I do these great pieces just after that middle peak when I don't care anymore. I'm like, oh my God, I just have to finish this. Like, And so I'll take chances that I wouldn't normally take. Like, or, or also, I'm like, oh yeah, I got a couple of good ones here. I've got like five or six good ones. So my reputation is not destroyed. Now I'll try something. It doesn't matter if I fail because I maybe I won't even show it because I got enough, right? Like if you get your 30 done early, then you can really experiment and just do these crazy things. So there's a, a value of ex- sort of exhausting your own resistance, getting getting to the point where you're you're no longer capable of putting blocks in your own way. You're just doing it automatically and you don't care how the result turns out anymore. And that's when you get a good piece with, with watercolor anyway, for sure, because it's so spontaneous. Um, watercolor is such a partnership between you and the material. Uh, you have to be, yeah, so it puts you in that open state. So that's the other aspect of the marathon. Uh, yeah, yeah. Those are, I think, the the things that really make it different from the 100 people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. A couple of points from that. So firstly, doing this every day, it occurs to me that especially to build this instinct, momentum is such a big part of it. Like a lot of good ideas, you can have good ideas from one event, one uh, time that you went out drawing, but to incubate it, to feed it, to really formalize it into a really something, a revelation of some kind, you need that momentum. You need to be working on it a little bit every day, even if it's not a lot, but just a little bit. Uh, Secondly, I was thinking about what you said about, you know, reaching a peak and getting tired at it. So a part of the lesson of 30 by 30 is also pacing to understand, like, just like for a marathon, if you're going to run a marathon, it's not a good idea to run your fastest mile in the first 10 miles, because then you might tire yourself out and you will do terribly at the end of it. But so this is one thought, but the flip side is what you mentioned that once you're tired enough, you stop, let's say in a way. So one of my favorite authors, Charles Bukowski said, and his gravestone reads, incidentally, don't try. And that sounds, at first, it sounds discouraging. He's asking you to not try. But what he's saying is something also that uh, in the Matrix, so Neo is told, stop trying to hit me and hit me. Yeah. Stop trying to do something and just do it. And that's something that comes out of maybe that tiredness when you just give up on trying to be something and you just express. So there's, I think, a very famous, uh, was it Hitchcock or some, or maybe Stanley Kubrick used to do this, that he would do 60, 70 takes of a single scene until his actors were too tired to act and they would just be the person that they needed to be. Mm -hmm. And wearing them out in this way was wearing the resistance out of them, like you mentioned, just tiring the, the, the fear out of you. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's accessing this thing they call in the zone. So again, there's a psychologist that writes a lot about the zone concept. So if you've never fallen into that zone where you've where you're just drawing completely instinctively and the stuff just comes out of you without any effort, you don't you know to experience that firsthand, then you can say, oh my god, it's not people aren't making this up. Like you hear these stories about what it's supposed to be like, but if you haven't felt it, you sort of think it's bogus. But like when you wake up and the painting is done and you don't even know who did that painting. Wow, this is really true. There's a thing called the zone. So if you can, if we can trick you into experiencing it, then maybe you can chase it 
uh, on your own. So the fatigue is part of it. Maybe it's a cult. Maybe this is a cult where we keep you up late at night and <laughs> interrupt your sleep constantly. And then you're exposed to these new ideas and you're just like, yes, this is true. We've brainwashed them into thinking <laughs> that this is the way to do it. Yeah. And now they have lost ties to everything else and 30 by 30 watercolor is all they have left in life. I'll convince you to give up your pen by shining lights in your eyes. Too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's that's one of my big uh, like things that I admire about your direct watercolor work, how, how it doesn't rely on like it. So I see things in lines and borders and shapes, but this is a new way of looking at things. And I, I'll, I'll go back. I don't want to ask you this right now because I want to ask you this with reference to your oils and the work you do there. So coming back to 30 by 30 watercolor, I noticed on your blog that one of the ways you're powering through it is, of course, thematic. So a lot of people do this now with one week, 100 people as well, that the 100 people they draw are not from observation not from reference pictures, but something else. Like maybe they're drawing actors, maybe they're drawing people in their family. So different themes which also become motivation for you. And I noticed on your blog that your one of your motivations, at least this year, I don't know about if it's consistent, is that you're uh, emulating the works of painters that you admire and you're sharing some of their quotes, some of their ideas around painting. So tell me a little bit about this. How do, how do the words of these other painters help you? Uh, is it uh, and what what about their art styles are you able to then implement, especially when it's watercolor and they are not working in watercolor? Yeah, it's interesting you focused on those ones. So those were the like my post-marathon wind down. So I do this thing where I push till I get there. And then when I hit the goal, then I'm free to do whatever I want. I even do that in 30, in the 100 people. When I get the 100 people, then maybe I want to do a portrait that takes three hours because I'm tired. I'm temporarily bored with sketching. And I can do that because I hit my goal so I can do whatever I want. So screw you, I'm going to break the rules and just do my thing. So uh, last, every marathon, so I'll, sorry, why myself back? I actually approach each marathon as its own lab experiment. It's, it's like a science experiment. So I'm going to, for this marathon, my goal is to achieve X, Y, Z. So for, um, I, I'm terrible with numbers. The year that I did a book called Apocalypse Variations, all of the sketches were uh, on a theme which was kind of an apocalyptic landscape. Uh, it was not my most popular year. People were generally like, what the hell is he doing? But I wanted to do this project and, and produce a book out of the event. So the every drawing that I did went into the book. It's uh, 30 drawings and all the preparatory stuff. So the whole thing is one complete package. So the chance to do that experiment, to do this work I would not normally do, um, you know, you... You, it's again permission. I'm going to give myself permission to do this weird thing, and I'm testing a number of things. First of all, it was pouring, pouring color, um, which is sort of a, you know, normally I'm a very drawing oriented person, so just pouring the color out of little cups onto the page was a completely different approach. There's a technical experiment, and it was a thematic experiment. So, uh, and it's packaged up with this deadline so I can do the experiment during the deadline and I don't have to worry. After it's done, I can pretend it never happened if it was a dumb idea. And, I, you know, it's not like, you know, hooking your whole art style on this. This is now my art style for the rest of time. I'm known as the guy who does these depressing paintings. I didn't really want that. I wanted it only to be a little window of time. So the ones with about these other artists, at the end of the project, I said, I'm going to take five days and do like this mini marathon where I just look at these other painters. So I went out and, and I'd been collecting uh, photos of 
you know, I reference photos of other artists. I thought I would do a book of just drawings of other artists. And then I discover that once you start reading the history, we have this problem now with our history. The mass majority of Western history, especially art, is this imperialist legacy. It was this really dark, not very good time. So, uh, so I'm looking at these painters that I admire their paintings and learning about their life. And it's kind of like, oh, this is not very good. <laughs> so uh, it actually kind of inspired philosophically to do these paintings. So I'm specifically talking about uh, uh, Gauguin in Tahiti. It's actually kind of horrifying when you sort of read about the history. They would go to Tahiti and they would buy uh, a wife. Uh, sailors would retire there because they could buy a wife and a house and the wife would cook and clean and do everything like there's sexual slaves as well and uh you know to the to the people living on the island actually it's probably and quite reasonable we have this extra girl and we can actually make some money by you know employing her to work for this western guy but you know in the modern context this is really bad right this is like 100 times worse than any kind of sex trafficking. This is like the entire imperialist nightmare is expressed in this guy's paintings. So we have looked at it in the past as here's a guy who broke all these barriers and became this artist. He was free to think anything he wanted. But when you look at the context, what his idea of freedom was this ridiculous male power fantasy of dominating the world, right? So uh, this is very philosophical. So I was going to just be inspired by the guy's paintings, but then they came out as these like very dark things that... Instead, my reaction to, to what it was like. So I painted some uh, paintings of um, uh, Francis Bacon because I, when I look at his work, I'm uh, inspired by how it's like how little he cared what anyone else thought, right? But then when you go and read about him, it's probably he was suicidal. Probably he was so depressed that he was just, he had freedom in a sense. We look at it as freedom, but it was almost most likely he was a very tortured individual. There's probably a lot of drugs involved. Um, like the, th the things that are positive for an artist were not positive for the guy's life. So it was very interesting to do these little biopics. So all that is in these little sketches. It's only a handful of sketches of these artists. But when you look at what they actually said versus how they lived their lives and, and then look at the pictures of them, uh, the whole thing synthesizes into this uh, worldview that was fascinating for me, so I made these made a set of these paintings. Maybe we'll put one of them in the in the thread on this or whatever when you post. Yeah, it. yeah. Also, uh, your you made paintings uh, imitating Rousseau, and that was also a similar kind of idea of doing what you, whatever you want and painting from dreams. He was the guy I liked because he they there was apparently probably it was pretty impressive in this whatever time period. I'm so bad at numbers. I'm going to say 19th century. I don't even know what century it was. But this time period where these guys were living in this kind of industrialized nation and everything was very rigidly socially stratified, um, the, the fantasy of living out in nature must have been so freeing. So Gauguin goes out and, uh, you know, does this human trafficking and <laughs> tries to live it with drunken, drug-addicted parties. But Rousseau was this quiet guy who had these stories in his mind. So... I was like the the cleanse, the palate cleanse. I'm like, you know, you could have these desires to have this freedom in life and not impose your freedom on someone else, turning them into a slave to make it happen. So he was actually far more noble uh, in his approach, right? So I ended with him because it was, yeah. 
<laughs> a way out of that. Sorry, that's probably a lot more than you were expecting as an answer. Oh, no, that's that's quite interesting because, well, you know, you have learned these things also from having like, so this idea of how you can motivate yourself with a project. So 30 by 30 watercolor is what I'm doing. And now that I've finished my 30, I'm allowed to experiment. So I'm going to experiment with this. And again, this is something you might not have allotted or allowed yourself to allot time to if you were not doing this project. Yes, and absolutely. that has led to this discovery. So there's a lot of value in this kind of thing. So for example, for nearly a year now, it's going to be a year at the end of this month, I've been doing a weekly newsletter in which uh, I stated my goals right at the start. And now I try to stick to those goals every week and I have to do it every week and I do it every week. So now it's become a part of me to express myself this way to subscribers and readers. So the idea was that I'm going to talk about my journey of self-education. Because I'm an artist by intent, by deliberation, I've turned my life around in order to be an artist. And I'm trying to learn every day something or the other, small things, big things, influential things, or just little, little techniques or tricks. And I'm going to share that. I'm sharing a journey of self-education. So once I've stated this goal, it's given me something that I enjoyed doing. I loved to blog, but then as social media took over and interest in people reading and those view counts went down, I stopped saying things because I thought nobody cares about reading anymore. But now that I'm doing this, I'm putting myself through this thing that I'm expressing myself because I've made this promise. And this promise now allows me permission to more deeply explore these things. So now I'm interested in MC Escher. So I have a book about him and I have a reason to give time to go through that book because I'm supposed to talk about it. I'm supposed to write about it. I'm supposed to condense my thoughts about it. So I need to read widely in order to condense them well. So there is a reason for me to give time to these things, to think about his impossible geometries, to think a little bit more uh, one step beyond what the author has said and try to put my own idea around it or my own thoughts around it. So Uh, these things are very useful and sometimes when we make these promises or we give ourselves these reasons we do things that we want to do but we just wouldn't give us like again it comes to permission we wouldn't give ourselves the permission to do it because hey that's just an indulgence why would you do it do something better with your time yeah absolutely yeah like why would you do this it's gonna taking an entire month to to do this is probably not I mean, probably not going to get you anywhere. It's totally not true, of course. It will advance your art in ways that, that no other way can. But yes, it's that thing about permission that, that I, I definitely would not have done these drawings. And it, and I have literally been thinking about it, collecting the quotes from the artists for two years, probably, just wherever I find one, I put it in the document, thinking I would do this book. And then when I, this is the, this is like the time set aside. So now, okay, I've got a bonus time. I'm going to test this project. I had thought maybe that would be the whole project, but I wanted, but I ended up doing a different thing with my experiment this year. And then I had bonus time to get into it. So yeah, you wouldn't do these things until you, without setting aside the time. So, and it's a big hardship a month, you know, you have, you might, um, for a lot of people, you're going to give up something like I don't exercise during that month, which is probably a mistake. So, uh, yeah, what's the, you should have a sort of idea of what you're going to, what is, what do I want to get out of it? What is the project I want to, like, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to, to do something I wouldn't otherwise do. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and to be able to do it, you probably have to rearrange your life. Like the, the fundamental way to get through the marathon is to set up your studio in the middle of your living room and not clean up. 
just saying. It's going to be a month. This is the deal, family. This stuff is out here, the cameras and the lights and the art supplies. And if you don't clean up, then you can sit down and do your painting in 15 minutes. If you put it away, it's 15 minutes to even get started, right? So so we're we're definitely talking about the, the, that. The whole benefit of, of signing yourself the project will give you back these returns. And if you can, if you can't do it in a month, maybe you can do it in two weeks. Maybe, maybe you can only do it in one week, but just booking the time. It's under the same as taking a workshop where you go on location. You've spent all this money. So I'm sure you've had this, you get there and you're like, well, I'm going to get up at seven in the morning and draw because I spent all this money to come to this workshop. So it doesn't matter that I'm tired. I'm going to do the work on a regular day. You say, no, I'm too tired. But on the workshop day, you do the work. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, communication around these projects. That so you you talk to you speak to people on the Facebook group you have for thirty by thirty watercolor. Um, is is this kind of interaction fun for you? Do you do you specifically try to help people overcome certain obstacles? And uh, can you relate like just so people can be a little inspired to indulge in it themselves? Can you relate anybody's positive experience from putting themselves through this this process hmm. for thirty days? Well, I mean, I people do say the positive things that I love it when I hear them. They say all those things we just said. Like they say, I never thought I could do that many pictures, it's more pictures I've ever done in my life. Or I feel more attuned to my stuff. Like I'm, I'm getting the instinct of what my colors will do. You hear that spontaneously from other people. So that's great. To, like, a, you know, when someone says they got it, I didn't have to tell them what the goal was. I, I love that. I'm like, great. That's awesome. That's what I wanted was for you to feel that. So... You do hear the people report that, uh, and that they get that. Well, it's the gym buddy thing. That if I can get these people to bring their friends in, then all of their friends will like their little club. You know, maybe it's some of the people in Savannah I painted with, or some of the people in Brazil or whatever. If two of them can get together at the same time, then they'll they'll push each other to get all the way to the end of the marathon. So, uh, yeah, I hear that from people for sure, and you see them talking about it in the chat. You know, and I try to uh, be very light. It's not, um, this is just a Facebook group. So there's probably better ways, but Facebook makes groups very easy and it, it's already hooked into the social network. So it's, you don't have to set up all that infrastructure. So I know a lot of people don't like Facebook and, and I've had people, you know, people say, can we please do it somewhere else? Because Facebook is evil. But, every, you know, anyway, it's just a Facebook group, but you, so you can't really teach, right? It's not the venue for correcting anyone's paintings. And I don't think that the marathon is the time to be um, trying to fix your problems or learn something or whatever, right? So I try to keep it light and just be like inspirational. What It's very easy to just say, oh, I love that painting or these flowers are great or, or where were you when you, where's that location? I'd love to paint there. Like you can just, it's just uh, chatty. And so, you know, I don't want people to think like, um, uh, I would love it if I didn't ever have to say anything. Everyone said anything to each other, right? Everyone just talks to each other because you want a group momentum to get rolling. And that definitely does happen. Uh, this year, a couple of people started their own projects. One, I wish I, I'm so bad with names. I should be able to quote this lady. She, she was doing water, moving water, which is very hard to paint. And so she said, that's, that's my project. And she put out a picture uh, one of her references and says, you guys, to your try at this picture. And 30, 40 other people all did that that one painting. So we have all these variations of that one painting because they're inspired by what how they could see her getting better at this very difficult subject. And then they could take some of what she was doing and try it out for themselves. 
So this woman did this on her own. Just let's do something to keep, you know, keep the group moving. So those are the things that you will get out of the group uh, that, that I, you know, you couldn't possibly be on top of all of that, right? You, you can't, no one has the energy to do all of that. So you want to create a group where the group will do it for themselves. So, so there's that. Yeah. 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 That. Yeah, yeah. How, how do you feel about how do you feel about uh, the education aspect? So you've been you've been a workshop instructor, you've led workshops as well. And on your website, I also see the wonderful free downloadable PDFs you have on different subjects. Um, tell me a little bit about what it's like to do these workshops uh, to articulate your learnings in a you know, in a in a step by step process for other people to absorb. Well, the, the best thing about teaching is that you have to figure out what, how your work, how you work, what is it that you're doing. It forces you to codify it into a process, a step-by-step almost process. It forces you to think about how, how do I actually do what I do. Uh, so that's the best thing about it, is it teaches you way more than you teach anyone else. And then you are motivated again. Like, I, oh, God, people signed up for my workshop. I, I have to go painting every day to be tuned up for the workshop. So it's a way of, uh, you know, if you wanted to say, I'm one, I want to be a yoga instructor, uh, this is a very difficult life. How are you going to possibly make a living? But really, is it just an excuse to do yoga all the time? <laughs> right. So that's, that's what it is. It's a, it's a, it's motivation for you to do your own practice, to clarify your own thoughts and be able to relay them to somebody else. It's so educational to you. I'm just getting so much out of this. I can't believe that anybody I'm getting paid to do it too is just a bonus. That's why I do it. Uh, I think all of the great instructors must get that out of it because it's a fin- tremendous amount of energy. It takes a huge amount of time and effort and, and it's all this mental energy. Um, I don't think you would do it if you weren't uh, so aggressively learning. Uh, that You hear that phrase a lot, that teaching is just aggressive learning. But yeah. So that's definitely what I, I think is one of the big, benefits out of doing it and then there are just plain tangible benefits like you get to travel and go to places that you wouldn't i would never get to go to paint on the beach in portugal but everyone's gonna come together and do this so we get the opportunity to have this experience so i think urban sketchers is is actually better than all this stuff there's these workshops you know you can spend five thousand dollars and go to italy and go painting with people and have gourmet meals but you can go to a castle and yeah yeah one of those retreats yeah you can go to an Urban Sketchers workshop for your Greyhound ticket to get there. I mean, I'm exaggerating. You still have to get there. So it's still inaccessible to a lot of people. But it doesn't cost anything. It's like 200 bucks or whatever for the workshop pass. And you get all that experience because you're doing it as a group together. So all the benefits of teaching could be had just by joining Urban Sketchers because you're, you're teaching each other. You're, everyone's taking turns being the instructor. Or someone is really good at watercolor, they'll do a demo, or someone's really good at portraits, or someone isn't even the greatest artist at all, but they organize an event. So, like, they get people together. Uh, there's one I love. It's an Urban Sketchers event where you sit around a table and everybody draws, there's four people, everyone draws one person. And then next round, four people, everyone draws the next person. So, at the end, you have this grid of paintings where it's all the it's like this kaleidoscopic portrait of all the different impressions of the, of each person and everyone gets to take home a drawing of them done by another person so the person who runs that is probably a great artist in themselves but they don't they wouldn't have to be anyone could set that up right so uh 
so I, I think the benefit of all these group activities are very accessible. People should should sort of not not be afraid to set it up and just do it with their own club. Do one of the exercises you've done with someone else and be bad at it, but do it together and get that benefit of teaching. Because for you to set it up and explain what you're going to do is going to help you more than it's going to help the other students, right? So all of my blogging was just, I want to learn this. So I'm going to go out and learn it and you're going to watch me learn it, which is just what you just said. You're going to start this, you're doing this project with your newsletter and people are going to love going along with the ride because they'll see you develop and they'll be inspired to develop themselves at the same time. Yeah. So that's, that's what's great about teaching. Yeah. The, these selfish motivations are really key because like uh, that's, I, I have this podcast out of selfish motivations. It's great that I get to uh, share uh, this this knowledge and these ideas with so many listeners and having more listeners with every episode is a true joy. But the reason I started it was also because the pandemic took away this community that uh, I would meet every week of Urban Sketchers. And I have learned so much of my art simply from being an Urban Sketcher. And I did not want that momentum to stop. And so much of it was from watching other people draw, looking over their shoulder, but so much of it was just listening to them talk about their work and how they learned and what they did for things like permission, for things like ideas, for little catalysts of, I can also try that, or this is something that I thought was useless, but turns out it, it this is how Shari does all these beautiful things. So I should, maybe maybe this is worth my time as well. So part of it was this selfish motivation that I wanted to keep getting these ideas from these people that I happened to be fortunate to be either knowing or be one degree of separation away from them. So let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, you've been an urban sketcher for a decade and a half. Who are some, uh, or regardless of who, what are some things that you've learned from being an urban sketcher? And is there some kind of evolution that you can see in the kind of subjects that you would draw initially, the subjects you were later fascinated by, the skills and the tools that grew into you through being an urban sketcher? Yeah, it's very clear, the progression. It was incredibly useful. I call it my my graduate degree in drawing. Um, you know, when you come out of art school, you're barely just getting started. So, uh, yeah, I totally learned everything that I do today through urban sketching because it, it was, uh, I mean, so much, you're doing so much drawing. You're You're doing it in challenging circumstances. You learn so quickly. So... You know, I went from just a black pen, like a pen and a, I used a pen and a brush pen. So I'd have a ballpoint and a brush pen. So I had the thinnest line and the thickest possible line. So the simplest possible tools and drawing just details, like a window or a, a carved. I like to, San Francisco has a lot of wonderful architecture. So I like drawing like a carved lion off a building or, you know, something, some gothic detail. Uh, go to the museum draw artifacts. So I went from drawing little individual things to starting to draw big scenes and then doing them in color. I mean, it was a very clear progression to drawing, tinting my drawings, like coloring them in. I don't like to say coloring in. I always feel bad when I say coloring it. So I say, I tint my drawings. So I'm, I make myself a coloring book and I color it in. And then, then eventually leaving aside the line and now I'm a watercolor painter. So that's a very natural shift. Go from drawing to painting your drawings to just painting. All of that I learned on the spot through Urban Sketchers. So if it, if it hadn't been for all of that, I wouldn't be the artist I am today. I mean, I wouldn't have, I would have given up a long time ago and I wouldn't have learned all these things I learned. And direct watercolor, I'm sort of, I kind of branded myself with this style. Uh, and by, by that, I mean Alaprima, 
um, I like to say now that it's whatever is the least preparation that you need. If you can't do it without a drawing, and I still use a gesture drawing sometimes. I'll use a continuous line drawing, but it's a very thin, I use a 0.3 millimeter graph, you know, um, graphic uh, mechanical pencil. So the line, sometimes the line is there, but it's invisible, right? So whatever the least preparation you need allows the drawing to be the most spontaneous, the painting. I wouldn't have come to that if it wasn't for this sort of speed-based uh, capturing in the moment, right? If you, So I know these academic artists that learned the, you know, French Academy way. And so the thing I say is that, you know, in the first, I don't know, eight hours, they seem like they haven't done anything. They're just some ticks on the page and they've got this like weight on a string. They're measuring. It's like, did you even do anything today? And then in the, and at the end of a hundred hours, you're like, how did you even do that? This painting is amazing. That thing looks real. So I live entirely in the first 45 minutes, right? <laughs> like my, everything I do is at, at that, it's done so quickly. I can't even imagine having the endurance to get through such a long painting. Well, that's not true anymore. So now I'm able to do a more sustained piece. So there's no way I could have done that 10 years ago. I just could, I would go to life drawing after in a 20 minute pose. I'd be like, what am I supposed to do with the other 15 minutes? Like I'm yeah. done. I would just move and do four fives in a 20 minute pose because I just didn't know what to do with the time. So yeah, it totally has expanded my abilities and your, 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 your powers, right? Your peak with this kind of training. I mean, it's, it's like, you went to the Olympics and, you know, you learned under the hardest possible environment. Like it's really will teach you to draw urban sketching. Like they, the people have said that for years. Like they say, draw from life. They say, draw in plein air. Uh, painters like Sargent would take students out and they would do tan oil paintings a day. So we didn't invent that, but this is where we have access to this training. ground. And you will not get this in art school. If you go to art school, nobody will time you to do a piece. Nobody will say you have to have so many pieces done. Like you only had to, I think the minimum I had to have to graduate was three paintings at the end of the year, like the entire year. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, probably you wouldn't do very well if that's all you did. But there's no way to get that kind of short of taking one of these academic courses where you have to go to a private school, uh, which I did do some of that. Uh, there are some great instructors in these atelier kind of circumstances. They really know how to teach you to draw. Other than that, there's nowhere else to learn it. So, yeah, it was the greatest time of my life. I got so much out of it. I hope everybody does it. Hi, let's take a short break here. This has been a super enlightening conversation already. We talked about the folly of the idea of geniuses in art and how that is a form of institutional gatekeeping. Mark spoke about how he gets obsessed with different things for various lengths of time, which is an interesting way to move forward and reminds me of how a gamer might explore their world map. He referred to his involvement with the urban sketching community as his graduate degree in drawing, and I could not agree more. Although for me, the association is more like the undergraduate degree because I never learned so much in all my preceding years as I did in a few months from being an urban sketcher. We've covered some of what Mark has given back to the urban sketching community through one week, 100 people and 30 by 30 direct watercolor. In the conversation that follows, I will cover some other wonderful downloadable cheat sheets that he has made available for free on his website. You can find links to all of those in the show notes. 
Right now, I'd like to take a minute to thank all the people who support and make this podcast possible. As an independent podcaster, I do all of the work around making this show, right from curating the guest list to reaching out and sometimes not hearing back, occasionally being lucky enough to schedule a conversation with a sketcher that I really like, diving into my own curiosity to prep all the questions, and that's just the start of it. Even having a great conversation is just 50% of the work, because after that comes the job of editing and post-processing and typing out all of these words that I'm saying to you right now. It's a lot of work that I do all by myself, because I love doing it. But this labor would be certainly too much to do if I did not have the support of my listeners. Independent content on the internet needs generous supporters and patrons. And you can become my patron simply by buying me a coffee. It's just that simple. If you like this episode, if you like the work that I'm doing, use the link in the show notes to buy me a coffee. Say hi, tell me what you liked, and we can even have a conversation. I'd like to give a shout out to the people who have bought me coffee these last couple of weeks. So thank you, Becky, Ruth, Vinayakam, Anne, Mark, Russ, Sanket, Santosh, Dinah, Megan, Mark, ATN, Carr, Deborah, Emma, Martha, Ellen, Blake, Martha, Ashley, Kate, Mike, Molly, Melanie, and Henrico, as well as some other anonymous donors. Each of you has helped to keep this show going. At the moment, I'm brainstorming ideas for future episodes. This means not only crowdsourcing a guest list of urban sketchers to invite, but also working out some new episode formats that I would like to try. It's a conversation that I'm having with the members of my Sneaky Art Podcast Club. Their committed monthly support comes with some exclusive privileges, such as discounts on prints, opportunities to pose questions to my guests, and sneak peeks into my works in progress, including this ideating that I do in collaboration with them. One of my goals for this year, for example, is putting together a second book of sneaky art. And members not only get access to my writing drafts, but also get to pitch in and share their own ideas about how they think it should look. Oh, and did I mention they will also each get a free copy of the book when it's released? I really enjoy this one-to-one relationship that I'm building with people who enjoy my work. And you can be part of it too. All you have to do is buy me a coffee. Okay, it's time to get back to Mark. In this final segment of our conversation, I ask about his shift away from urban sketching towards studio work using oils on canvas. What inspired this shift? What are some things he enjoys doing with oils that he could not do with watercolors? He has some answers that were intuitive to me, while there were others that I absolutely did not consider. Lots of wonderful revelations ahead, so do listen. We also talk about the future of art on the internet as he sees it, and ideas around being an independent artist in today's world. Mark has many wonderful ideas, and he has shared many of them with the urban sketching community. Sometimes it can be difficult to imagine what he himself has taken from this community. So I resume our conversation by asking him precisely about this. Let's get into it. Uh, Can you tell me something about the evolution of the kind of subjects that you were pulled towards drawing once you became an urban sketcher? The kind of urban elements, the, the way people were in urban landscapes, things that you perhaps hadn't considered before? 
but because you're now exploring more tools you're exploring more different media through urban sketching surrounded by people who are mm-hmm. motivated towards drawing other things what were some things that you were opened up to and that you then explored in this way yeah i mean it was always a question of kind of capacity like i the length of my drawings never really changed i always did these short sessions but i was suddenly or gradually able to do more with that session mm-hmm. so i whereas i might just draw the person or just draw like I said, a piece like a window or a door frame. Now then I'm able to draw the entire scene. And I always wanted to put myself the thing about urban sketching is that you're you're living your life through the drawing. So the question is what kind of life do you want to live? So I would want to go to the most interesting place possible and get myself in front of a cathedral or in some ruined old abbey or something. If I can be in one of these fantastic places, it's super inspiring to me. So I'm drawing all these picturesque things, which I know is a little bit Part of urban sketching is this goal to be reporting on daily life, on finding you know, things in your ordinary life or in doing real reportage, like drawing the protests or, uh, you know, uh, if, uh, uh, I forget her name. I'm so bad with names. She drew, at nine, she drew 9-11. Like at 9-11, she's drawing the, uh, the buildings as they fall down because she lives in New York, so she's actually drawing it. Mm-hmm. Um, this was incredible to see a sketcher do this. You have to put her name in afterwards. So... Uh, that kind of reportage has never been my main thing, though I've, I've gone on a way to try to find it. For me, it was like, how do I capture this place? So being able to go to like the old part of Quebec City and paint, you know, the, you're in the city square and now I can paint the entire square, the statue in the center and the fantastic buildings around it and all the people moving back and forth. So, you know, getting that ability through years of practice and and learning what, you know, how to go fast, right? Getting the confidence and just learning what you can shortcut in order to to get it done it just made it possible the ability to do the same so much more in the same amount of time uh, that's what i got out of the the training mm-hmm. of urban sketching so uh, my work changed just constantly changed in scope you know because of this um i look at other people that I, and i love what they do like uh, pendetta dossi there's a name i remember who she bends all of the environment into these fantastic ways i would love to kind of do that or uh, KK, uh, uh, who's from Penang. Um, he has this way of drawing with a stick. I took his workshop where you draw with this sort of uh, broken twig. I want to be able to draw like those guys, but uh, I never do it. I always just end up doing my own thing. So uh, I hear what you're saying about when you're inspired by the other people around you and you learn from them and maybe think of a different thing. But I'm very stubborn. I just do my thing all the time. Uh, so there's different ways. I should be more open, but that's how it, and that's how it, that's how it goes with me. <laughs> there are some ways it kind of becomes your thing, right? Yeah. Some there are some things that we look at other people doing, and I actually looking through your lessons on your website, I feel like I read it at some point, and then I just forgot that oh, Mark has said these things, and now they're just my things in my head that I well, thought about drawing people in this way and crowds well, in this that, way. I stole all that stuff too, and usually I try to be. Uh, open about this dealing like so what i like to do is look at something and synthesize uh, there's a, what i bring to it is maybe a little bit new like how to do it faster or how to mm-hmm. do it from a sketcher's point of view or maybe it's just i think about a good way to present the information so i have a thing called a dot plot where i put down little points and connect all the dots to like as a way of measuring and actually putting the measurement dots down so i watched jeremy lipking do that with a portrait he put I, I just, that's what he did and I copied it and it works. So then I represented it in an urban sketching context or I, 
was broadcasting for a long time this thing called tea, milk, and honey, which yeah. was ways to think of the consistency of your, the viscosity of your paint as as these liquids that you know of. So I got that from um, uh, this Australian guy, Zabukvik, or I don't really know how to say his name, Joseph Zabukvik. Um, Zabuvic, you know, he's a Croatian name. So uh, if you if anyone if you can find his book online, I think it's out of print. He talked about coffee cream and another liquid. But um, the tea, milk, and honey analogy. Uh, the other aspect is the amount of milk you put in your tea. Uh, like you don't put that much milk in your tea, right? And you don't you don't put that much honey in your tea. Those are actually the ratios I was doing for a while. The vast 90 percent of your painting is this wing wet open surface and then a little bit of opaque to tighten it up at the end so i actually thought tea was just a, this is like a five percent better analogy like two percent tweaking the analogy right. so i definitely steal everything and just represent it but uh, i like to give my sources so. let's let's talk about tea milk honey a little bit more i i read i read the flyer that's available on your website but i didn't think of like and you just said viscosity and now it's clicked for me perfectly why tea milk honey and i didn't think about it in that respect i did think about it in terms of the proportions of the different things how much tea to how much milk to how much honey that goes in and then with reference to the three steps towards creating a direct watercolor piece but the viscosity part is also interesting because a part of it is wet on wet and a part of it is then wet on dry yeah and joseph's book we talked about coffee cream and milk or something or coffee cream and honey and i'm like you don't put honey in your coffee anyway knowing that you need that sticky honey-like consistency to put in an opaque dark and for it to remain opaque uh, or to be able to put, he'll put, uh, he's famous for this kind of, uh, it's a shtick. He'll put traffic lights on the cars, silhouettes of cars. So he'll use a thick cadmium red to put that. So you need a, uh, you actually need a thick paint. So I had no idea. I thought initially all water, it's watercolor, right? So there should be water in everything. So to be, so I, I got that from him that actually some of it should be actually quite pasty so and honey can you can be liquid honey like you'll pour out of the little jar that's shaped like a teddy bear or you can squeeze out honey <laughs> or or it can be more of a crystallized honey and then you get a dry brush right so it really is a perfect analogy for the viscosity so yeah you just learn the hard way if i want to put the little darks under window ledges i need opaque paint so i need black they said don't use black but you do need black if you want to put in these little they call contact shadows when a object rests on another object and there's that dark shadow underneath so yeah you're just by what do i need to do to solve this thing i have to draw all the time so that's practice and then what did someone say one time okay if i take what they said and fix my problem with it then that's how it becomes your your methodology and then having to teach it deciding you're going to do a workshop on it then you have to find a way to to relay that to someone else so team milkani is a perfect example of why teaching is better than than not teaching because it forces you to codify your your process. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So that's very that's very correct. Um, now I have a question now from some uh, regular listeners of my show. I reached out to people who are oh, yeah. subscribers to my podcast and I asked them, cool. "Is there something you would ask, like to ask Mark?" And uh, two of them uh, had a question for you. And incidentally, it's more or less the same question. So I'm going to paraphrase and join them together in my own words. Uh, it also brings me very nicely to the to this phase of our conversation uh, when we're talking about evolution and different methods and different media. So the question from uh, Russ and Kate is about why you have moved to oils. And 
uh, a little bit more away from urban sketching. So is it a sense of uh, outgrowing urban sketching, leaving it behind uh, in uh, in order to seek? Like, is there a different horizon you now see in front of mm-hmm. you through oil painting? How, how did this change come about? How did you think about, how did you realize you wanted to do this? Well, as usual, there's a, there's a lot of things in there. So let's try to pick it apart. Um, I really like, I, it's very important to me that people don't think about it as a hierarchy, that one type of thing is better than another, like that drawing is better than painting and, or that, or whichever, right? It shouldn't. And we get this thing with photography. We're always saying like drawing is better than photography because we're immersed in the world, right? We have this, like, we are better. We're morally superior because we experience and bring our attention and our creativity. Photographers inferior because they're just clicking the picture. So, I don't like this. Like uh, it's always hierarchy. We have to put ourselves above or below. So I try not to think that I've that I'm doing oils is like moving up in the world, but it's also hard not to think that because there's external pressure. Society just appreciates oils more. You go to the art gallery and there's these two paintings. You see a terrible oil painting for ten thousand dollars and a master for watercolor for five hundred bucks because it's because it's on paper. It feels ephemeral. It doesn't feel like a real thing. Um, when I did start to try to think about selling watercolors, I started using really heavier stock because I, if you do it on a sketchbook, it just feels like it's nothing, right? That final thing. So there's that external sense of worth. It's very hard to not live in it. You know, we live in a society where oil paintings are art and watercolor is hobby. Uh, so that's unfortunate, but you know, it's part of it. Uh, I had thought that maybe I would sell my, when I, I mean, I always wanted to just be an artist and live from my paintings. And um, I've only ever done design, like designed games. And so it did illustration, but it wasn't uh, that kind of illustration. So I always wanted to do that. And I knew that you, you couldn't, I thought, sort of thought you couldn't sell watercolors. So if I switched to oils, I would suddenly have access to this world. Well, that's not true. It's actually not true at all. It doesn't change anything. But I did think like, oh, if I just had some oil paintings, then I could just hang them in art galleries and sell them. Um, so that, so I said to myself, I'm going to spend a year and conduct an experiment with these oils and just see whether I can do what I'm doing with direct watercolor uh, in this other medium and um, you know make myself a gallery artist, become a gallery artist. So I do have to say it didn't work. I did not just get into galleries automatically. It's just as hard as it whatever it was before to get people's attention. Um, but what happened was that I really became in love with the texture. So I think that watercolors are excellent for printed material. Like if you're doing a book or the web is essentially a magazine, um, watercolors look great on the screen and like you, you really see the dynamics of the watercolor and they look great in person and they look great in your hands in a book, but on the wall, at arm's length, they don't they don't have the same uh, presence, physical presence, and I think it's because of the texture. So the the oil paintings that I've been doing in the studio are really textured. So maybe we'll put a picture of one in your link there, uh, or people can go to my Instagram where I post those. They're like impasto. Some of it are ten millimeters thick, is the thickest I think I've measured. Um, so it's a rich, three dimensional sculpted surface. Yeah. Yeah. So I just got excited about that for its own merits, you know, regardless of dreaming that I would become a, a, a gallery painter. That was just so much fun and so different from anything you can do with watercolor. And that you can, 
pick up the color with your knife and lift it off and move it to another place. You so watercolor is so like one and done. You can't alter it. Like if you're a, if you believe in the the wet and wet, yeah, once it's dried and it'll never move again, you you cannot retouch it. So I always said I would rather do ten paintings and pick out the best one and always watercolors. But when you're an oil painter, you can always fix it. You can always alter it. You can always keep the spontaneity by just removing anything that got stiff, which is like Sargent was my teacher there. He would just say, scrape it off and start again. Everything has to be done in one session. So, um, yeah. So it gave me this, like I said before, it was a question of, of new powers, new capacity. Suddenly I could alter the composition and perfect the composition, but do it very quickly and do it weeks later. Like I come back three weeks later and still make this dramatic change. So there was something that it offers that water doesn't offer. And so then now I realize, or I feel this is why some people say this about oils, that they're better than watercolors. They have more powers when they're doing it. Like I, I said to myself, why didn't I do this sooner? I've been doing watercolors for 20 years and it's super hard. This oil stuff is easy. It's so easy. I see why people do it. Their paintings are better because it's just easier to do. And uh, the other aspect that's easier is when you mix the color, it is exactly the color that you see. You, the color that goes on the canvas is exactly the color that's on your palette. You can hold your palette knife in front of the painting and see that this is the right color before you put it down. So watercolor, you don't know what you're going to get until it dries. So you have to plan. It's in your head. So, um, so it was good that I had all those. <laughs> watercolor was a great teacher. It was the hardest possible teacher. But... Uh, uh, it was like a holiday to make these paintings. They were just like, this is so easy to, to paint in oils. It's fun and flexible and, you know, it looks great and uh, they are so colorful in comparison. So, yeah, I got excited about that for a while. But uh, I think I'm working it out of my system, but it was for at least a year. And I said to myself, well, no, it was, more, it was more than that. It was two or three years I was doing it. But I, I think I spent a year broadcasting it on the internet. So I said to myself, I'm going to do 100 watercolor paintings in this year. And it actually took three years to get hundred done because other stuff got in the way. But uh, just like with the marathons, I said, I, I'm going to take on this project and I want to learn this. And I, it's reasonable that some audiences, I get this all the time, like, oh, I wish you would just do more watercolors because that's why they came. That's why they, we got to know each other doing watercolors. They're not ready to leave. So I feel a bit like the Beatles. I just did this new album. Nobody cares because it's a new sound. But Bob uh, Dylan stick to acoustic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I and I don't want anyone to change what they're doing because I'm changing. Like that's not. Uh, you should stick with watercolor. It's great. Or you should stick with urban sketching. Like I. Yeah, you know, I I moved to working in the studio because I was doing paintings that took a little more time. Or the, okay, here's the real reason: you can paint bigger. That's actually the main reason. It was frustrating me that was too hard to haul a large panel around. So if I want to, again, this gallery question, if you've been into a gallery lately, the paintings are huge now. It's ridiculous how big the paintings are huge. It's become this thing that nobody wants. People want one gigantic painting. Whereas if you go into an old person's house, they have maybe dozens of small paintings in the space that now will have one giant mural, which I, I blame on television. But anyway, um, so yeah, so I wanted to go bigger and, and there is a physical limit to just how much how big the paper you can get with watercolor, but also the how far the water will move is a physical 
property of the the wicking of the paper. It just physically won't move any farther than a certain distance. So when you paint a larger painting, the scale of that bloom is smaller relative to the painting. So uh, yeah, so that was that actually was my main, first reason to go into the studio. And then later, the fact that it it was more comfortable, you didn't have to look for where you're going to go to the bathroom, you didn't have to carry everything on your back. That just uh, sort of helped cement the deal that I enjoyed working in the studio. <laughs> It's uh, one of the things you mentioned is actually one of the first questions I'd asked uh, Paul in my first episode. So we were talking about exactly this, that when people look at your work and when people come to your work at a certain stage, they have this flat one dimensional image of you. So people might think, oh, you're the direct watercolor guy. And then when they find that you're working on something else or these days you're doing something else, it jars with their one dimensional image of you that you're this guy. And they like people like to compartmentalize in this way, especially people that they don't know personally. So it's a little easier to describe them. So there's a bit of mismatch or a bit of discomfort in contemplating that somebody is becoming something more than the the compartment we had for them, which mm. is like you're fulfilling. It's it's kind of the beauty of the internet in a way also that this person that you were say 15 years ago or some whatever amount of time ago is the person that they're connect- they're able to connect with today or is a person that is able to inspire them today with the work that they are seeing of yours oh, yes. or yeah. the ideas yeah. that they are seeing of yours. So all of those people, like all of those Mark Holmes are equally alive on the internet. In a right. You've left some breadcrumbs that people could follow to get to that destination. Yeah, yeah. But it is a weird thing with modern society that... Um, I mean, I'm not saying it's a modern thing about typecasting, but the this other aspect that your old person is out there all the time. Like if you, if you, uh, authors would do this, they would just change their name. They just write under a different name and nobody would know that it's a different person. So first of all, now we know because we find them. Uh, they discovered J.K. Rowling was writing under a different name because they did a word matching analysis and the software said this is the same author. Like the plagiarism software found her. So you're outed. So you you actually can't get away from your old Google searches. So it, so if a person was to say, say a person was to say, I want to graduate and become a studio painter, and I think of it as this, this linear direction, you actually can't get rid of your past. So your old teaching watercolor stuff is always going to be there. So you now, a modern artist has to be okay with all the learning they did in public. But they, they put out all this uh, juvenile work that in the past they would then erase. They would scrub from history and present themselves as a master. So we have this illusion that people can be, you know, just they just come out of nowhere as a talented artist because they, they deleted all their training or they never showed it. Right. So now now we are all stuck from our past Google searches. Yeah, very true. And uh, we kind of still have the privilege, I would say, almost that a certain part of our life, the early 20 years or something, in my case, the early 15 years, first 15 years of my life were not on the internet. So a lot of my personality, so people talk about this, that once you've expressed yourself on the internet, the main trouble with that is how do you back down from an image that you've created? There is this compulsion you feel to remain that person because so many people like this person and I don't want to be seen as walking away from it or backing down from it. Yeah. And you don't want to let them. You don't want to let them down. 
yeah it applies to identities but it also like generally it comes from opinions so if you've expressed an opinion on the internet now that thing is sealed for you it's very difficult for you to publicly change your opinion because you now have to deal with the fallout of having backed out from an opinion that you stated and mm-hmm. so a lot of people are afraid that they'll become something later in life and these early opinions are going to chase them as as is happening with some uh, celebrities these days as we're finding out but the same way it applies to art like how you've expressed yourself in art or anything that you have done in any kind of creative field is now going to stay with you as a tag uh, trailing after you forever and it's very difficult to break away those chains it definitely happened with with teaching art for sure cuz you i've said things like this is the way and then i've changed how i do it so then you're you're a bit embarrassed you're like well i, I told you to do all that stuff but i don't totally don't do that anymore like i used to do a very precise drawing and i would say to people spend half the time on the drawing as you do on, on the painting 50% or in fact even more if you spend 75% time on the drawing then the painting will be good cuz cuz if the drawing is poor the painting is terrible and now i'm saying don't do any drawing <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. like the least drawing possible so you have to backpedal from your what you your own past right so so this is forces you to be more honest right so i have to say actually at the time this was really good advice and if you are still struggling with being able to visualize the scene then you should do all those things i used to say but now i do this so yeah 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 let's let's uh, we're talking about the internet now and i want to of course talk about that with you also but let's go back to uh, what you were saying about oils uh, i found uh, these these reasons to be very compelling like i have never considered doing this i'm as it is i'm not very big on colors and representation of colors in my work but uh, i'd never thought about oils this way the appeal of drawing larger versus smaller and how and how how that can exist like the i like being able to express yourself that way it's not only expressing ideas but the scale of how your how you travel on that surface with mm-hmm. your with your arms like drawing from the shoulder and what that does to how you express a shade a contour also this uh, aspect of oils which is utterly amazing and actually now i see why watercolor is tougher because there's an element of magic in watercolor like the uncertain you don't know what it's going to do how that color is going to bloom mm-hmm. and what that's going to, like of course it's fantastic to let go like as a perfectionist artist it's a valuable lesson for me with watercolors to learn to let go like that that it's going to do its thing and i'm going to go with the flow of it but having that deliberation and that control over your colors to go from dark to light for example or to change everything entirely that's such a powerful deliberate tool that oils offer you i'd never mm-hmm. quite thought about it that way mm-hmm. yep yeah they're the closest thing to digital of course so that's a that is another angle that i, I don't know how many people have the same digital experience it's getting much more and more common really the young some of the young stars i see in art uh, they all have digital experience so that's another aspect that um oil is so flexible but of course digital is even more flexible and um the whole reason to do art has to be seen uh, in the context of of digital art and photography like why am i bothering to do this painting what is the purpose of doing something that could easily be done in a photograph and people fall into this i said this before this mentality like well it's better that i did it as a drawing but is it is it actually better like 
you know, I'm going to challenge that because when you look at great photography, it tells all the same stories. And it's clear that the photographer has the same immersion in the place. And they will say the same things. Photographers will say, when I walk around the city with my camera, I really experience it by stopping to look and take a picture. They're just quoting the things that Urban Sketchers say, right? So we have this idea that that uh, we're we're deeper than they are, but it's not true, you know? So I I feel it's not true. So for me, it's like, why are you making the art by hand? Why, why, are, you, why are you so stupid? Why are you so dumb? Like, there's a better way to do it. Take a picture. It's going to be better than your drawing. You can take it into Photoshop, do anything you want with it. And then why are you even taking a picture? Why are you so stupid? You could do a 3D model and then you can animate it and, and zoom in and out and look at it from all different perspectives and merge it with other people. And like, there's so many more powerful ways to do an image than than doing it by hand. So if you're going to do it by hand, you have to bring something intentional to the table. Absolutely. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Like this multiplicity of media of the ways, like things that didn't exist 200 years ago, 200 years ago, there was no way of recording the moment for posterity unless you make a drawing or a painting of it. And certainly no way to uh, depict colors and realism without making a large painting. So this is the only thing you can do and that this is the only way to fulfill this function. But as a trained engineer, I always think of form follows function. And now that we have so many different forms available to us and so many different styles that we can do, what is now the reason for me to draw something and not quickly take a picture of it? I have to, this is how I feel in this phase of my artistic uh, trajectory, is that I have to offer, I'm not trying, I can't try to beat realism or I can't try to be hyper-realistic because I'll just, if I want to be so realistic, I'll take a picture, I'll apply a convenient filter on it and that'll be my realistic portrait. But I have to offer something unique and not something necessarily better something of its own value, something that can hold its own ground that these other func- other media do not. And this kind of understanding is is coming to, I think, it's, it's like people who've been practicing art for the last 10, 15 years, I feel like they're at this transient point where so many things are changing so quickly, so many standards are being torn down, so many old world ideas are being replaced very quickly. Like how quickly digital art has entered become mainstream, become so uh, prevalent everywhere is it's, I think so many people are just taken aback by that fact. And it's, it's set me free in a lot of ways. Like I do uh, uh, less now, but I used to do quite a bit of digital art. That's how I did my web comics. They're all digital art and it freed me up. It allowed me to make mistakes without a cost associated. I didn't ruin a paper I didn't, uh, I can edit the color because I'm not good with colors. I can quickly edit it. I can try different combinations and I'm not having to redraw, lose more time. All of these are huge freedoms. They allowed me to do so much work. They allowed me to get through so much volume that would have, I would have just given up. I wouldn't have done any of those things before. So that's what, that's what oils gives you as watercolors, this feeling that uh, suddenly you can change anything and, and you have all this flexibility. And then, what it, but then what it gives you as a fine artist is the texture that digital art lacks the surface. It's not a physical object and photography. I say digital art, but really photography is the dominant medium and film is the dominant medium over time. So uh, this gives us a language that we can, we can make an object that has inherent value. Yeah. And the, the scope of the object being larger, I mean, I like to think of the paintings as a window 
into the world. So if they can be at a almost life scale that you can go into the painting, like your peripheral vision is involved, you, you feel that object in a different way than, uh, than an illustration in a book or something on your Instagram. So they, the physical thing has this merit, right? So yeah, cause you, you have to, it really is not a good idea to be an artist. There's really no defensible reason why you do this. Um, I, I don't think that it's a, I don't think it's a viable lifestyle anymore. Um, as you say, things have changed so fast. So uh, um, we could talk about contemporary art for another three hours. That's a whole. That's a whole new. That's a whole new thing. But uh, yeah. So so all of us that are doing it probably don't even know why we like this thing. And so I'm going to circle back around to that feeling of the zone. So that if you can be in that zone, you are having. You're actually having chemical changes in your own brain, like you inside your own body having an out-of-body experience in your own mind. Painting is has become a thing where the only reason to do it is people say because I love it, right? But it's because of how it like how it makes you feel, how it transports you when you're when you're doing the act of painting. So things that take away that the barrier and allow you to immerse yourself, oil is also op the open time, the fact it doesn't dry. You can work on that painting and be in that painting and you're not Watercolor will throw, will push you out. Like the painting is done. When the paper is dry, you're finished. You must stop. So, uh, so that's the other thing about the oil painting. So now I'm trying. Now it sounds like I'm trying to convince you to try it. But if you tried it, you would have this whole different experience. That you're, uh, you would suddenly say, "Oh my God, I've been so limited all this time with yeah. these, these little sketchbooks." And working in a pen is great because it's so bold. But then when you have access to subtleties then, you know, it's like uh, if you were a poet and you said, I'm only going to use the same 15 words. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're, mm -hmm. you're very right. Like, I think, so uh, how it happened for me was that I was nervous about drawing badly. So I didn't draw, I didn't try things for the longest time. And then when I moved to the digital medium, it gave me, like I just mentioned, all these freedoms to try things and to to therefore learn very quickly. But I reached this point with the digital medium where uh, my app, I was drawing on the iPad, it had a lot of these brushes and tools and hundreds and hundreds of them. But And they all had very realistic dynamics. So pressure dynamics, uh, angle at which I'm holding the stylus dynamics, speed dynamics, very realistic. And I could change them to make them fantastical, basically. But the problem was that my actual tactile experience was just the same. It was a stylus tip touching the uh, the surface of the iPad. And while that is very realistic and very uh, responsive and super great and et cetera, et cetera, it's the best thing. Uh, I would recommend digital art to everyone. It's still just the same tactile experience, no matter which brush you go to. So I reached a point where I realized that I'm not learning because I'm not learning how to use this brush, right? Because I don't know how it actually feels to use this brush. Yes, I'm using sure. all of these brushes in the same way because my tactile experience. So this very human thing, this tactile feedback is a very key part of how we work with the tool is the same tactile experience. So now I need to go back to analog tools. I need to use an actual watercolor brush to feel that heaviness of the water in it and the pigment mm. in it. That's actually kind of brilliant that you've said something actually kind of brilliant. This, uh, this is absolutely true that it's the, the, the physical feeling of doing the stroke is the same, the, the pen on the glass. So, and it can't be any different because that's the tool. If you used audio so that when you drag the brush, you could, you could get a different kind of feedback. 
you could hear or um, they, uh, for instance, on the on the controllers, they have vibration, mm-hmm. like they have yeah. a dual shock on the controller. Yeah. So if when you dragged the brush, you felt the vibration of it bumping over another surface. If there were ways to give tactile feedback, you could actually make the, the tools feel different. So if an engineer was to do that, you could revolutionize digital there, art. There are people working on this. Just uh, like uh, the, even 11 years ago when I was in university in uh, in the Netherlands, there were people who were working on tactile feedback sensors. So I can assure you there is a lot of work, br- brilliant work being done on this uh, front. And we will soon have it, I feel. Very soon we'll have uh, surfaces which are responding to uh, cold press paper versus hot press paper, for example, and this brush versus that brush. That'd be amazing. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm sure that will that will be there. Uh, the the part about the textures is really fascinating to me. This is another point you raised about oil painting that I didn't fully consider. I've as as a painter, I've considered it as a viewer. So I've, a lot a part of my self education is walking through art museums, and I loved walking through the Art Institute of Chicago when I was living in Chicago, and I had this feeling when I was looking at. I was walking through generations, centuries of the best art of that century and just Mm -hmm. strolling past it. And I was having this ideas from looking at Renoir without quite knowing who he is or what he's done and uh, the pointillism of Surat and Van Gogh's room with all his work. And I was thinking about textures because uh, textures and scale, both of these points. So I was thinking about it when I walked very quickly past a very large painting and I thought this looks so beautiful from this distance. But the closer I go to it, the more like like digital work, I'm able to see the pixels almost. So mm-hmm. there is, I'm able to see the individual brush strokes and they disem, uh, kind of dissociate me from the subject that they're drawing because now I'm seeing the very elements. I'm seeing the pixels of this, this analog art. So I was looking at your oil paintings and uh, you have these 10 by 10 paintings. So I'm assuming it's 10 cent. Is it 10 centimeters or inches. is it 10 inches? 10 inches, yeah. 10 inches by 10 inches. And I was zooming into them until I couldn't make sense of the thing that you drew. Now it was just a bunch of colors and strokes on strokes on strokes. So the 3D aspect of it was very, very vivid, even though I was looking at a picture of it. And it's it's definitely such a big part of enjoying it and so my question that i was initially going to ask you about this aspect before you told me about the textural part is how you can zoom in and it looks like blobs of paint and just colors and then you zoom out and then oh this is a road or this is the side of a valley and it's it's just fascinating to me and i'm thinking how making art in this way working with the color not thinking about the edges not thinking about the objects just the colors it's such a useful way to dissociate from what you're looking at and to see it as just colors, as just shades. Mm-hmm. When you yeah, can plant uh, them on top of each other like this. Yeah, it's definitely true. And uh, okay, so there is a bit of a art artifice going on here that uh, I decided I loved this texture um, and painting with a knife particularly. And I use um, thickeners in the paint. So I put wax and uh, marble dust into the paint to actually make it more impasto, um, you know, to go further in that direction. So I'm only choosing landscape subjects that can be done that way. So you'll see that I stopped putting any people into the picture and I stopped putting any buildings in the architecture because there'd be no way to draw the little windows with this kind of thing. So part of it is, uh, you know, Part of it is then this, that the subject matter choice affects, you can get away with it. 
So you zoom in and it's a complete abstraction. It's just colored marks. And then when you back out, you see that it's the coast of Ireland or something. So I get this, you get that magic trick. Uh, but it can, it only works with that kind of ethereal landscape painting. So I've become very interested in this specific kind of, uh, I'm interested in the depth. So you're going, going in the illusion of depth, you're sailing into the painting. So I want these vistas that have these vast views. Um, but uh, yeah, it's the perfect uh, storm or whatever. It's the perfect application for that that kind of art. So they are uh, really abstract paintings. They're they're. I'm looking for things where I can abstract it to the point that the subject is gone. Uh, except I get to have my cake and eat it too, because when you're across the room, you have subject. When you're up close, no subject. So yeah, so that's what I'm doing with those paintings. I don't know if you if you go to. I made that as an art process for Instagram. I said, I'm going to switch to Instagram and only put my old paintings on there. Uh, so one thing I do is I always show the close-ups next to the original. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you get the full experience. And yeah, it, it, it's sort of part of the experience of the art, isn't it? Then like the part of the visual joy of looking at an oil painting, and this is where it beats uh, digital art and especially looking at things on Instagram, for example, is how it becomes different things to you at a certain distance. And though, so it sets this standard that you're supposed to regard it from this distance to enjoy it. And then there's a different element of enjoyment that you can derive if you come right up close to it. Yeah. And um, also different light. It's actually a sculptural object. So at different times a day, it has a different mood. Uh, that too, which is a physical thing. Yeah. So that's all very neat. It's all very fascinating. And uh, not very useful. It's not, uh, there's no purpose to this, but as an, uh, which is like most art, it's just a way to invest your mind and live in this creative space. So I've definitely enjoyed it. I don't know why I did it, but I did it. I wanted to ask, but I think you've partly answered it because uh, of how thick it is and you can't do the windows with uh, like tiny, minute details with it. I wanted to ask if there is any other reason for the change in the subject matter that you're so clearly drawing things that are not urban that are not people-oriented in any sense. So uh, is there also a curiosity towards it, or is it simply because of the the, the media? Well, there, there are pragmatic things. There are always more reasons than... So I love the paintings. I do them because I like them, because I, I, I think... And, and I have a philosophy. So this uh, the purpose of doing these paintings, like we said, why are you doing this useless thing? Is to create an, a physical object that makes this mental escape. You look, you zoom into the paintings and you're transported to this alternate world. And then you have this, this magic trick of the abstraction versus the reality. The experience of looking at the paintings is this, this unique thing. So I want to create this magical object. But also, I'm doing it in my studio. I'm not traveling. So I can produce this work very, very reasonably. Like I just go and I paint. Urban sketching, you... Like there are sketches. I've spent $5,000 to get this sketch. Like I had to fly to this place. I had to stay in this hotel. I had to, you know, do all this stuff. Right. So it's only sustainable as a lifestyle to be a travel traveling artist. If, if you, if you've got that, if you're a traveling teacher, you're going all over the world because your students are paying you to go there. That's great. Right. But if you don't have that, if you decide to stop teaching or if life tells you, you're not going to, you're going to stop teaching. So the pragmatic thing is that uh, my parents got old. So my dad got sick and we couldn't travel. We had to stay and stay here at home. Uh, and we couldn't, like, we really couldn't even be away for 24 hours. So everything, all that had to stop. So 
I, but I wasn't going to stop being an artist. So I did this complete 180 where I, this, now this is the time to do this experiment. Like I always wanted to do this as well. It didn't come from nowhere. And now when you can't travel, then here's the opportunity to do it. Right. And, and having done it, I look back at that. And I also think like my urban sketching was about me indulging myself, like going to all these beautiful cities like Barcelona and, you know, this fantastic capitals of the world. I, I never drew in Paris, but I would have, that's obviously a place I wanted to go. So you're indulging yourself. You're, you're, it's just tourism. Like these Instagram uh, influencers that are, you know, they're in Bali at some beautiful hotel. Isn't that nice for them that they get to live this cushy lifestyle and do all this stuff, right? So, you know, as I'm a little more mature, I, I think I probably wouldn't go back to that, even if I, even if I could, you know. So when the circumstances changed, I didn't just jump back into all that world traveling because, now I had altered the way I sort of thought about what was possible with art and why I was making the pieces, you know? So, uh, so there's that too. So there are these, so there's this pragmatic thing, there's this philosophical thing, and then uh, just the, the opportunities of what the art brings to you. So you, you change by these circumstances. You, know, yeah, you don't even know yeah. why you're, you find yourself a different person and doing different things. Yeah. Like uh, I think a part of what resonates with me about this story is also there's a phase where you explore the world and there's like your, everything around you. And then there's a phase where you explore yourself and everything that's inside you and how, how you express that sometimes has nothing to do with what you can see in the outside world or the possibility of seeing something more and being on location at another gorgeous, fascinating place. And maybe you needed all those experiences in order to seed it within yourself. That's probably yeah. true. And when you're younger, yeah, you had to learn the vocabulary, but you also wanted to live live life to the fullest. And that's great. Everyone should do it. Uh, and then maybe you become a little more, you get to be an old guy. You don't want to do all that. I don't want to backpack around the world anymore. I'm old. <laughs> There's that too, right? Like it's just playing gets harder. I'm not that old, but old enough to see it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, another thing is that you've, over the years, you've retreated from a, a very prominent or a very regular social media presence. Mm -hmm. um, this is at a time when, you know, more and more artists, especially professional artists, are finding instead the need that they want, they need to be there every day, multiple times a day, you need to be present on social media, whether you're making stories, whether you're tweeting, whether it's a TikTok video of your art creation process, or just more and more posts because like we're being we're being driven by the algorithm like mm -hmm. create content for the algorithm to prop up instagram for more and more people to look at it and to put their stuff on it um so tell me about this decision to is is was it a decision in the first place to move yeah. away or were you just sick of how things were going or did you did you think about like was there was there a pros and cons list yeah. in your mind yeah. about it well and uh you talked to danny gregory a while back and he had a lot of good things to say about this like uh, i thought it was very interesting very enlightening like why why are you doing this why are you allowing yourself to be pushed by the algorithm this <clears throat> people say excuse me <clears throat> people say uh you know i have to post i have to post every day or i'm gonna be irrelevant but uh it's not clear to me that this is actually a winning uh solution like you, you have to have something to say. You have to have uh, quality to your message. So most people, um, it's a sweeping statement, but just if you're just going to be posting every day, I'll just say for the sake of getting your name out there, 
you don't have that much to say, most people, right? So when I was doing the Urban Sketchers, I was learning very quickly and I had a lot of very prag pragmatic information to get across. Here's something I can actually tell you. When I got to the point that my art was becoming more personal and I had reached a sort of, I don't know, capacity with the art, I'll call it a skill level, there's less to say because I, it came to the point where every time someone asked me a question, my answer would be, well, you should draw for 25 years and then you'll <laughs> find that uh, you don't have this question anymore. Like, like that's not, that's not useful. Or uh, like I can just say, you, your color will get better. You only have to do 5,000 paintings. And at the end of the time, you, you'll just, it'll be fine. Like this question of how do, I think you were getting at that. How do you make this image that dissolves into these abstract colors? How do you even do it? Well, I don't know. Like my brain does it now. I don't know how to do it. I can't teach you to do it. Or I can teach you to do it. Take 25 years of your painting. <laughs> do everything I did. And you'll one, and then it'll just happen. Like I, I can make these paintings without even trying, because which is I shouldn't say. Art. This is the other thing about the art as a master is you. They learned it's like a union. They said, "Don't say that. Stop saying that. Don't tell people that it's easy for you. Tell people they will never be able to do this. Tell people it's very hard." So it's very, it's impossible. I strove, I struggled to gain this power. And now I have this cosmic ability to make these paintings. So anyway, that's sort of the thing. Is like. When I didn't have something very clear and cogent to say, I feel you should shut up. You should stop broadcasting because you've said everything you have to say. And it's, as you said before, it's still there. The lessons are right there in the book. So the answer always becomes, well, I actually did a demo on this. Here's my old link. And at some point, you can stop just doing that. So I left up the site and it's full of good information. And there's a couple of good books for me. But I, I and if I have something that I can actually relate to someone will be a value to them. I'll do another book, but, uh, but that's what kind of caused me to start to back up. I sort of got to this point where I did a whole bunch of stuff on Instagram and then I haven't posted in, in uh, months now because I finished that oil painting project. So when I switched to the Instagram, I said, these pictures are going to stand for themselves. It's, this is not something I'm going to teach you how to, how to make these magic tricks. You have to, to watch me do it. So Instagram is the media for that. You just look at the pictures and there's almost no, like it's very hard to do an interaction. Like the, I think it's almost intentional. They've almost made it difficult to, to interact on Instagram. Like the DMs go into the air. You don't get your messages and you can't reply and you can't edit your answers. You can't put links in. Like there's all these things that make it like this is the perfect place for one-way communication. So I switched to that mode. And so people say, well, you stepped back from social media. So that's what was that was what was happening during that time so it was kind of a combination of i have nothing to say i'm not sure that all of the time we invest in social media is actually getting us anything um and everything i do have to say is already archived here for you so let's do that and then plus i'm just having more fun over here doing these paintings so. Yeah, I think I think that point is quite interesting that maybe the question they're asking has been answered by Mark in 2015. Why don't you go ask that guy instead of asking <laughs> me in 2021? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and it's not the beginner's fault, right? A beginner will say, what brush do you use? They'll always say, what brush yeah. do you use? Because they yeah. need to know. Yeah. So and here's... the answer is always going to be that's irrelevant. <laughs> well, or or and there are right, there's I have things to say like you need a I like sable brushes, which is a problem for vegans, but uh, I like them because they the hair is springy, stiff. Uh, if you use a squirrel, uh, it'll uh, it flops around. So there's a reason to use a sharp 
pointed, stiff brush. It holds a lot of water. This is why I recommend this brush. But I don't have to repeat that answer a hundred times. You can, you can. Here's the answer. It's why it's available on my website. So, um, yeah. So that that sounds a little bit rude, right? Like uh, I don't want to bother ants. That's what I'm, I'm trying to apologize for. It's not that it's not people's fault. As they come to the medium, they have all these basic questions, and then I say I can't be bothered answering you. Look it up on my website. But to some extent, that is really the best thing for them that the that, that the answers are there, and and I still answer people. I still give them the links, and they still do these things. I love getting. I'm in course. I'm not that uh, isolated, but I don't need to go out of my way for that motivation because we talked before about how we were, I was only doing all this because I needed it to train myself. Right. And I don't too, I don't think I hid that. I, I have always said that to people, you should find this for yourself, some way to get other people to push you to, to do it. So now we're at the stage where, yeah, I can maybe retreat and, uh, and do other things. Uh, and then realizing that your painting is not okay. So I, I, you know, let's be real as well. All these people that have been following me for to, to learn art were doing it for themselves too. Like they only followed me to get free info, right? Which is great. Like that's what you should do: find people who are who are generous and take what they have to give. That's what we that's what we do on the internet. And then so they have no reason to follow me to look at my paintings when I'm not giving the free info anymore. Like they, it's it's not it's quite reasonable that they would now say, "I don't care about your paintings." Like they didn't come here for that, but everyone has this illusion in their head. Everyone thinks like, now I'm going to do these paintings and uh, people will snap these up because I have 10,000 followers and which is nothing. Right. But in the, in the urban sketching world, you're like, Oh, I have 10,000 followers. Uh, and then you look at some girl on Instagram and she has 75 million followers. So that tells you how important you are. But uh, so you think like they're going to love my paintings because they loved my art teaching. Of course they don't actually have any reason to care if they don't it's not that they're dumb or something and it's not they're not being evil and i'm not resenting them for it but we're now doing a different thing so i wasn't gonna beat people over the head and like uh, you know buy my paintings or why aren't you buying my new books you bought my old book buy my new book well it's not for the same audience so yeah exactly right i i think that's that's a very important point actually is that i feel like uh some urban sketchers are caught in the middle of this that are you communicating yourself as an artist on the on social media or are you communicating yourself as an art instructor on social media what is your audience uh, looking to get from you and what are you saying to them and you should only be an art teacher if you if you want to be if you enjoy doing it and you get value of it you should not should definitely not go into it because you're like oh this is something that Look at all the fans people are getting teaching art. I'm going to become an artist. Incidentally, you do, but that's that's faster, right? Like you will get more people to listen to your content if they feel that you are teaching them something because you'll instantly get a lot of people who want to learn quickly, who want to learn, uh, who want to get a trick. It's value for them. It's added value. And now it's added value is always better than just entertainment, I guess. But it's a trap. So like you talked to Luis Schmoes, Schmoes, yeah. world traveler Simoes. guy. Schmoes. I think I bet you they would say shmosh, but uh, so and I thought, why are you doing tutorials, man? You had this amazing thing. You were the guy who went and and went around the world. Like of all the sketchers, he is the star, the greatest. Like he, he's the physical trials of what he did and following his journey was so amazing. He, he doesn't need to be an art teacher. He needs to do another one of these crazy journeys, right? So that's I'm like, I want what I want out of this guy. I don't want what he wants to do. I want to get my 
fun of enjoying following him. But it's a bit of a trap that uh, 90% of the artists that live from art are teaching because you can't, you can't live from art. So there's this glut of online teachers because it's, you can definitely live teaching online, but you're not doing art. So then you say to yourself, well, I mean, you are, but you aren't, right? So you, then you're Exactly, teaching. right. It, it's something I'm fighting myself all the time. Like I want to be an artist, I tell myself every day. I don't want to be, like there's nothing wrong with it. And it's it's so used. I've I've gained so much from these people, but I don't want to be an art teacher. I want to be an artist. It's the higher. It's the tougher goal. Let's not say higher again. It's the tougher goal because again, your audience will come to you more easily if you are instructing them. You're giving them a very clear deliverable. Well, and uh, to, to tie this back to the events, so that's another thing I didn't say about one week and uh, thirty by thirty you will notice they are not art teaching anymore. I'm not uh, doling out tips and tricks and advising people. What I'm doing is facil facilitating that we make art together. So I'm doing my art, they're doing their art. We can do it at our own levels. If you're a beginner or if you're an advanced person, you do your own thing. So, But what we're getting is the, the value of doing it together. I would rather be behind a participatory event than be behind a teaching event because... Personally, that's what I would rather do. Uh, not that, I mean, there are lots of great teachers and they, they should pursue it if it is their passion, right? But so I'm looking for another way to have that online community not based around art teaching, but based around art making. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And it's it's a tough, it's a very difficult balance. It's, it's like you mentioned, with these short-term financial goals that you might need to hit, it becomes an even more difficult balance because one thing starts to pay and you need that from it. And it also starts to give you quicker uh, dopamine rushes because more people are attracted to it. Therefore, you feel better about having done it. But the other thing, it's this constant balance that you have to strike then between your personal self or your personal fulfillment and what people want from you. And therefore, the fulfillment you get from their attention yeah, I think that's the real thing is the social media is a trap that it's uh, the dopamine is great. I love it. I love getting likes. Who doesn't? So you get you say to yourself, well, I could I could make a career as an art teacher. But you really have to think, do you want to do that? Or actually, you just like the likes. Probably you just like the likes, most likely, because probably you're not actually you don't really have a career here. You just have a hobby that has been monetized. Right. And the people that can turn it into a full-time career are few and far between because they have to be a passionate teacher and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I think it's kind of a trap. And uh, Lewis should not start doing tutorials. He should plan another great trip, go to Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think his work is fantastic. And I hope he, like, I like the the balance that I hope he's able to strike is that I hope he's able to build an audience that cares about his work, even if he finds yeah. them through tutorials. And hopefully these tutorials allow him the freedom to do more of those kind of trips. And maybe, and I don't know, I haven't spoken to him in a while, but I hope he's, uh, he's able to strike that balance, that one thing to finance the other thing. Like yeah. the, do you know the 80-20 principle? The Pareto principle, I think it's called. Uh, well, how, how it applies to this? I, I think of it in terms of effort. So, uh, sort of, yes. It's sort of effort, exactly. Also, that 20% of your effort gives you 80% of your gains. Yeah. So hopefully the, the teaching part is the 20% that is giving him the 80% gains that he's able to then facilitate into 
mm. the things that he wants to wants to do and explore the world. Teaching is never like that. It's the eighty percent that uh, teaching. <laughs> teaching is uh, if you're teaching, you're teaching. You the amount of thought and effort that goes into relaying the information is much greater than the doing of the work. And then the research you have to do, the time you put into to doing the work, you have to be doing it for yourself because you can't possibly be rewarded doing it for anybody else. But uh, I think this is more like the thousand fans to go to use another another internet meme. If he can just get his thousand fans out of all of us, like you with your podcast, if you can yeah. just these conversations add so much more to the community, let's just do this. And uh, then you can draw whatever you want in your spare time. Because you don't have to sell your drawings, you can be doing this. For exactly instance. right. Exactly right. Uh, because uh, you'd mentioned a little while before, and I wanted to sort of push back against it, that it's tougher now to become an artist. And I would argue that it's in some ways it is tougher, but in some ways it's a whole, it's the easiest time in the world to become an artist. It's never been easier to be an artist mm-hmm. than today. Well, I, I would bat that back at you. I don't, I, I mean, it's the, it's very easy to get known now with the internet. But it's very hard to make a living. Like, uh, how well, do you that's, that's where things like the so let's let's look at the different aspects here. Learning being the first aspect, it's easier than ever to learn to be an artist, to learn uh, yes. to get re- access to resources. You don't need to be in an art school. You don't need to pay thousands of dollars. In fact, maybe you shouldn't go to an art school. Yeah, if you if you're the kind of person that can teach yourself. So yeah, if you're, if, well, if you're yes, capable true. of that. Then, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, true. So learning being one aspect, exposure being the second aspect. Can you reach and grow an audience that cares about your work uh, without being uh, displayed in a gallery? So there's a breakdown of gatekeepers, which could be said to have existed. In the old days, when you could only know people in your own city, they could ask you to draw the menu for their restaurant or paint a portrait of their dying grandmother and, and buy the piece from you. Mm-hmm. Today, you you have million fans who don't know you, and all all they get is this one way communicate, or you know we have our social interaction, but they're not actually supporting you in that. They're not they're not calling you up saying I need you to paint a picture of my dying grandmother. They're just pressing like. But but the, you can you can convert that. So for example, I'm now living in a new part of the world where I don't know anybody. I have been an artist online. I've been a writer online without ever having a network for my work. Like I didn't know people in Mumbai where the TV shows and the movies are shot. I never lived there. I never knew anybody there, but I put my writings on the internet and that's how I got a a foothold in that industry. And I was able to do work even while I was studying and doing other things in life. Similarly, now I'm in Vancouver. Nobody knows me here. Nobody has any reason to know me. I have no network. But I'm still approached by some local businesses for work because I'm able to show my work in 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 a platform like Instagram. I'm able to talk about my work on platforms like Reddit. And that would have been impossible for me. Right now, I would have been spending my time looking for a gallery to believe in me, to believe in my art, and to give me a space so that the walk-in crowd can see me and know my name. Well, for illustration, I agree. Yes. And and uh, say you want to be a video game artist, you just put your stuff on the internet, and and they need the work, so they will find the quality work, and you will get hired eventually if you keep going. So that is absolutely true. But art is a little like painting, fine art. I actually think that it may be dead. I think that uh, now we're really getting. We've talked long enough. We got the marathon is to the end where we're getting tired and saying stupid things. But I think that galleries are maybe over. The the audience that wants to buy a physical object and hang it on their wall is so vanishingly small 
uh, we have infinite imagery on our phone. Like that's a great never point. ending tailored infinite imagery. Why, why would I want to pay money for one image when I don't pay anything for infinite images? And you can say because the painting is is better because it has a uh, superior effect on you, right? And it's true, but it's an incredible luxury, like the to have a to have a home that I can hang the artwork in, like when I have to have five roommates and you know nobody has a home. I actually think crazy theory. That's why tattoos are so popular, because no all those people with tattoos are like I'm never going to own a home <laughs> full of paintings, but I have yeah. a gallery of painting in my arm. That, that's that's a great point so uh to to think about that like firstly it's probably never been easy to own paintings like it's always been costly perhaps it's always been difficult to to do that but you're exactly right in that a lot of people are getting the kind of rush they would have wanted from looking at art and regarding art and at one point the way to do that was to look at an actual painting now you get it from scrolling your instagram feed and you get a lot of different kinds of rushes very quickly. So you give one second here, one second to another guy, half a second to another artist. And, oh, I've looked at art today. Why do I need to hang a painting yeah. on my wall? And this is kind of how the world is now changed. Like it's it's the same in a sense, like if I try to not be selfish about it, if that's the word, it's a kind of liberation that's coming to the world. Like the fact that they're able to see things in more places one could have thought that, oh, it's a terrible idea that there are articles on the internet because uh, now people won't read library books. Why? What the authors are not going to be paid anymore. It's a lot of, like we were just talking about how quickly the institutions are breaking down. And it's some of it is taking control. Of, like there's a part of it that's very negative. So it's taking control away from people who are creating art and giving it to companies who are, showing you the art on the internet and then mm -hmm. showing you ads in exchange for it and monetizing you, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whereas you're not getting anything for your millions. But I, so with the 1000 true fans model in mind, and then these slow uh, developments that are happening now in what is called the creator economy, I'm very curious to see how people are also reclaiming what they've lost and reclaiming some of that control back what the early internet was all about the fact that you put something and it has value and instead of it being handed over to these three four companies can we reclaim value for yeah. it to ourselves Maybe. yeah i have high hopes as long as the creator economy doesn't turn out to be like the gig economy <laughs> or it was presented to us as a great freedom you have control over your life and drive when you want to drive and then it turns out to be a scam where they're they're living off you so like YouTube has been a scam forever, right? Three guys make all this money and people, and then you have millions of people putting their life into YouTube broadcasting and for pennies, right? So that's the question. Is is there a real creator renaissance or is there in fact just uh, now an algorithmic control? Like what you, what you see when you go out and search isn't natural anymore, right? This is the, the Google searches is controlled by exterior forces. So I find you because I'm into urban sketching and, and they suggest it to me. So it worked. We have this connection. But there could be some other artist that's trying to get seen and, and Google will just never show them to me because, the, you know, like I was trying to friend a guy the other day. We were doing this project. We were collaborating together and Facebook didn't give us a friends button mm -hmm. because we both had settings where there were no, we said, uh, no friends Mutual in common. Friends. Yeah. And I can't believe there's anyone left that I don't have a mutual friend with. But So we couldn't figure out why, like literally there's no button to, to talk to this guy <laughs> because we didn't have enough 
that they determined we didn't know each other and didn't deserve to know each other. Right. So that's happening with all search. So you start your creator economy thing and you're, you're, you're doing whatever you're broadcasting on Twitch. Well, no one's going to find you unless Google lets them find you. So what, what happened recently with Amazon, they, you were, you could get exposure through just doing good content. If you had good content and had the right keywords, you would find their stuff. But now Amazon has changed the entire game so that you have to pay for advertising. So if you don't buy the ads, you don't get shown up in the search. So there are some independent authors, which I follow because I publish my own books. They're saying, well, this is amazing. I put $50,000 a month into my Amazon ads and I make $75,000. So I make $25,000 like free money. Like I'm like, well, first of all, you had to have that capital. And second of all, Amazon is making all that money. <laughs> There's got to be some negative downside. They're like, but no, no, I made $25,000 for doing nothing. Like I just pay my ads and I get my money. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. But Amazon gets all the money too. So they won. Like what's, what's going on here? This is, it. it's, it's working for the creators right now. Yeah. But it's because they're letting you have this much pie so they can have a bigger pie. Right. Yeah. yeah. So now you're discovering, that's, that's now you're true. discovering that my, my parents were hippies and that I'm actually a communist. So this is my, is coming out uh, as we talk for too long. No, no, I absolutely, I absolutely agree with what you're saying. There's, uh, this, uh, the argument is that we're setting up new gatekeepers and not even seeing that these guys are now the new institutions. Yeah, they're more powerful gatekeepers and they're hidden uh, behind walls, right? And and at the same time, we have these expectations. Like I say, oh, I want to be a painter because being an artist is so wonderful. But actually, do I want to be a painter? Because all I'm doing is you know, propping up the patriarchy, man. It's like the 12 people that, like, if I say, you know, and I did, I said to myself, one of my goals in life is I want to be a real painter. And that means I want to sell a painting for $10,000. That's like, that's a benchmark. Because if I do that, then I can say to myself, I am made it. I'm a real painter. But then do I actually want to? Because the person who can afford that painting is probably not somebody that I know right? Like they're not in my social class, which is whatever failed academic or whatever my social class is. So like, it's just weird that you're to, to do that. You have to sign up to this kind of uh 1% economy, right? That you're, yeah, you're yeah, servant yeah. to your servant to the 1%. And then, so I, the more, the more I do research on galleries, here's the other reason I say galleries are dead. And let see the internet crashed a minute ago. So they're listening. I'm about to say something negative <laughs> and they, they censored us. But uh, so I went and looked at uh, some of the big galleries and I was running into these people, you know, the shows they have in, uh, in Venice, the Biennial in Venice. And I'm like looking at these artists and I'm like, wait a minute, this woman, her, she's the daughter of this guy who owns this bank. And this person is like, but, and you look into this and I'm like, you know what? They don't need any other artists. The children of the 1%, there's enough artists in the 1%. Like there's so few living artists today. All of those few living artists can be blood relatives of the people who, of the so few people who can afford to buy paintings. So how's that for a scam? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I absolutely agree. Like I feel this way about a lot of the modern enthusiasm movement. So for example, NFTs are a big deal right now, but uh, there are so many poor artists who are pumping money into generating Ethereum or mm -hmm. whatever those coins in order to list themselves on these apps. But they're not the ones selling. They are the ones 
whose enthusiasm is being used to prop up the right. value of that cryptocurrency so that the guy who has a hundred of them can have a bigger portfolio. And the day he's done with it, your enthusiasm is not going to count for anything. You're, you might make some scraps in the process and you might feel that, oh, I made money out of it, but it's completely managed and controlled by these people for whom you are just fuel. Yeah, they're starting up their own brokerage for these NFTs. It's like vape stores popping up. There's another one every week because they want to tax your exchange of value. So they realize that it's far better to be PayPal and tax every transaction than it is to to be the guys making a ton of money selling the paintings, right? So again, with Amazon, the I think the majority of their published books only sell 10 or 20 copies, but it doesn't matter to them. It's millions, billions of books. So it doesn't matter to them that no book is, individual book is successful in the old school way. So we say, well, we broke through the gatekeepers. We can now do anything we want. But actually, all we're doing is propping up Amazon, really. And and if you if you want to reach a few people, you have to do it by dedicating yourself. You have to be obsessed with this lifestyle to create a book like The Urban Sketcher that reaches an audience of people who love that thing. So you can do it, but it has at, it's sort of at the expense of everything else in your life. You have to be so focused on this thing, right? So like the, the Twitch stars that, that become video game stars, you know, they're broadcasting seven days a week, 24 hours a day, right? So they're, they're giving up something they don't even know what they're giving up till they're older and their their back is broken and they don't have any friends because they spend their whole time online. And yeah, so yes, so yes, yeah. So yeah, old, old man ranting is what you get after. <laughs> great, great points though. And they're very well worth pondering over. Um, well, We've had a really long, amazing conversation. I've learned so many amazing things. Yes, thank so, you. Yeah, it was great. Thank great you for having me, me Mark. Yeah, I really enjoy the way that you get so philosophical with your stuff. I, I mean, people should go back and listen to every one of them because they're uh, really one of the more interesting you know, takes on this. So, yeah, in-depth conversation. Thank you. Wow, that was a long one. If you're still here with me, thank you very much. I truly appreciate your time and your attention. I hope this conversation was of value to you. I know I learned a lot from having it. As you can tell from my side in our closing debate, I'm all in for the creator economy. And the creator economy, like Mark points out rightfully, is still quite nascent and could implode on itself. The only way it can work, the only way it might work, the only way we have to beat the algorithms is for consumers to independently support the kind of content they like. So I urge you to do that. If there is anything you enjoy on the internet, find a way to support the content creator. Let's quickly round up some of the various artists that Mark mentioned at different points in the conversation. He talks about his artistic inspirations Gauguin and Rousseau. We talked about video games and how there was a transition away from hyperrealism with the advent of multiple devices and mobile gaming, I super highly recommend the beautiful iPad-based game Monument Valley as an example of this. I will talk about this game and its particular relevance or, well, let's say its particular appeal to the urban sketching community in a bonus commentary that I will put together next weekend from this episode. I release a bonus commentary for most episodes. These are think pieces where I explore some of the interesting tangents from my podcast conversations. For example, after my episode with Roshin, 
I researched the artists who inspired her journey into art. They were Peter Bruegel the Elder, Hergé who made the Tintin comics and the the duo that worked on the Asterix comics. After speaking with Rob Sketchman, I wrote a bonus commentary about my own experience straddling the line between digital iPad art and analog urban sketching, and I talk about how I accelerated my learning by shuffling between the two. If you're curious, check out these files on my Buy Me a Coffee page. They are available at the cost of just one cup of coffee. Easy. Okay, it's been over three hours, and it's high time that I get out of your ears. I'll see you in the next episode, which is also equally kick-ass, although not as long. Thank you for your time and for your attention. See you then.